Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Russ and Mike here in... Yes, this is Mike over here. Over there, and we're in very hot and sticky Japan. Yeah, it's not so sticky, it's just hot. You know, I like the hot. I like hot. I don't like the sticky and humid, you know. Yeah, some strange weather. I feel like I'm at the beach. Three uh, typhoons blowing through in consecutive order. Luckily, we're going to be out of the line of most of them. Uh, Miraculously, because we're usually not. But uh, this year, it looks like we're good. Yeah, we're going to miss the typhoons. Oh, but I'm a little bummed because I kind of want to... I have all this great music I want to talk about, but we are going to... Take a little break, aren't we? What's going to happen? We're going to have to take a little bit of a hiatus because well, yeah. of life the events. The, yeah, the uh, we have to we have we're having issues with the mountain lair, shall we say? So we something to, like that. Um, you know, the real the, the the real world is knocking on the door. And we have to take care of some personal business, so we're going to take some time off. Do you want to say how much? Because I'm not really yeah, sure. We're going to be back. Uh, should be the. Second week of September, I believe. Second uh, week of September. Okay. Yeah, let's see. Um, it should be. Then, uh, yeah, probably we'll have a new episode up for we usually uh, publish Monday morning. So that'll be September 13th. Uh, right. We should be back Ooh. at that. So it's a bit of a break. Uh, on the jazz side, uh, that will be actually good for me because I have a whole list of releases that I want to discuss and I want to listen to, but mm-hmm. uh, they're not available on streaming yet or only one teaser track is available, yeah. which is really annoying. Uh, but hopefully in the upcoming weeks, I'll be able to hear all of them and then sort them into good combinations to make episodes out of. It seems to be that, uh, that I don't know, uh, there were a lot of uh, spring releases in jazz, but uh, summer seems to be uh, that labels are holding back on some things. Uh, I don't know what, if they've just figured they're not going to have a lot of listeners over the holidays when people are outside doing things or something, but uh, yeah. August is generally a kind of slow month for uh, classical releases too, but July was a huge month, and I've got a backlog of stuff again oh, okay. that I can talk about. And we actually talked about me um, doing the podcast solo for three or four weeks, but you have to – I think the, the Russ and Mike kind of musical relationship has to take precedence here because – I'm just not going to be happy talking about recordings without Russ hearing them. Because <laughs> I think part of the reason we do this this podcast is because I want Russ to hear all these like classical recordings that I'm listening to, and we would sort of talk about them together. So that's I, I don't the whole think it point. Would be as enjoyable, yeah, right. You know, um, we share things, and uh, and then we hope that you out there who are listening to us who mostly remain silent. Uh, we know you're listening, but uh, we don't, yeah. we could always uh, get some more feedback from you, but you know, that's what it's about sharing the music. And uh, we love to spend the time uh, to search out and listen to things. And Mike actually, you know, buys most of these things. He, as you can, yeah. if you could see him right now, he, he could, he could be seriously injured or, you know, I lost under the stack of collapsing CDs that are accumulate in it accumulating in his abode there. I, I could potentially die the same death that Charles Valentin Alcon died. Well, theoretically, this actually, this turns out not to be a true story, but legend yeah. has it that he, uh, he died, um, when a bookshelf, a 19th century bookshelf, which were these heavy that'd things, be heavy, uh, be no fell part on of, him no while reaching for, that, a, yeah. for a copy of the Talmud on the top shelf, uh, which turns out not to be true. Apparently, like some 
coat rack fell on him and he kind of fell on the floor and sort of I guess he in his head but things I could potentially be crushed to death by a a, a shelf of CDs falling on me yeah something that uh, no one else I know uh, has you know you know that won't happen to anybody else I know unless they're in my place and it happens they may just get like (laughs) you know well, you, you can't even die from strangulation from headphone cords because everyone's using Bluetooth now. So, mm. you know, we'll be a low-tech death if we died like that. But, you know, seriously, uh, this, the sharing of it is the good part. I mean, I finally, when I had ordered the uh, Mike Ladon, It's All Your Fault uh, CD, uh, yeah. the day after I ordered, I got a notice that uh, uh, this is temporarily out of stock. And so uh, I waited. Oh, and of course, I had listened to it on streaming, but I wanted to own that one because we talked with him. And I finally got it. And then uh, another place where I share music is with my barber. And uh, I've been going to the same barber for more than 20 years. And he's a, a music fan and a hi-fi nut. He loves to buy all of this used hi-fi stuff. And I guess mm-hmm. if he keeps it in his barbershop, his wife doesn't know what he's buying. So he has all of these uh, speak British speakers out of the 50s and 60s and turntables. And he's always buying used things. So when I go there for my haircut, I bring one or two recordings and then he shares with me what he has. So I shared with him the Michael Ladon and he really liked it. And he said, you know, he said, oh, cool. uh, you know, so Hammond organ and summertime goes together. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it sure does. I guess mm. I think the Hammond organ goes with all, all four seasons. All seasons. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, mm. the thing of it is, you know, that's where the joy comes with the sharing the music. So I can understand. I mean, I don't think I would want to get on here and just uh, talk myself about the music. Uh, if we can bounce it off with each other, that's a nice thing. And we tell yeah. each other, uh, hey, this is what we we're going to listen to this week. And we wait and see what each other thought of it. And uh, then hopefully yeah. uh, you listeners check it out on the uh, uh, playlist or on the links and, uh, you know, uh, gives you some ideas too. So, I mean, that's where the fun, the fun lies, but anyway, yeah. we'll have to take a few weeks off. Uh, we've had a good run, uh, straight 26 weeks, but, uh, yeah, not, you know, I, I feel bad leaving the listeners alone on the beach, but you'll be okay on the beach. You'll Just read right. a book. Okay. Just, and if you haven't, <laughs> uh, if you haven't listened me- to all of the episodes and interviews yet, yeah, it's a good time to go back and uh, catch up. Yeah, and more importantly, download or listen to the music that we've posted because mm. uh, that's really what this is all about. We want you to hear this music the way we listen to it, and there's loads of it, so that's I right. don't think you're going to get bored. So you know, please go back and uh, check some of those recordings out, and we'll be back with a lot of new ones in September, as well as we're going to have um, – because I'm kind of crazy about this. We're going to have the uh, our comments about the uh, – the Gramophone Magazine Classical Music Awards because they will be announcing their shortlists for their um, albums of the year um, probably around September, the beginning of September. Oh, and we'll uh, want to comment on those. So it, it's more, also a good chance to look back at um, some of the uh, more releases awards, we may have already Mike, talked about. You know how I feel about awards. Yeah, but the Gramophone Awards are okay because they tend to choose yeah. good things. It's not the Grammys. I mean, that's a, that's a different thing. Okay, I don't know if I yeah. can do that again. That was painful. <laughs> we'll probably change the <laughs> Grammy one this year. <laughs> we probably won't do that. Although I did like talking about the jazz ones. Yeah, I, those I, were I a really little enjoyed better. listening to those. I, the, the classical one was a little uh, too much. Maybe we'll just do the gramophone classical ones. We'll ignore the Grammy classical yeah. awards. I don't know. It, it can only or get we'll give worse. We'll a cursory mention or something. I don't know. So uh, speaking of listening to the links and the tunes, uh, just to remind the listeners that uh, everything we talk about, you'll find those links to uh, Spotify and Apple Music. And I should say, Apple Music, I didn't realize this, but uh, they've gone full CD quality finally. I guess that was back in June. 
Uh, so that was one of the reasons I switched over to Deezer. But uh, now if you can on, switch back. But I I'm could. gonna stick with Deezer. Yeah, I'll just stay here. I'm getting too They're old. French to switch. too. I kind of dig that. They're French, and uh, that's going to go along with this week's theme. Uh, but oh, right yeah. there. Yeah, right there in the description, uh, you'll find a link also on Deezer to the full episode playlist. So you can get all the music in one place. You won't have to click for each album title on Spotify or Apple. So if you haven't checked out Deezer, they have a nice catalog, uh, CD quality sound, uh, and a nice simple interface. And you can also listen to the podcast there uh, and uh, see our playlist each week. Uh, usually a week before we put the episode up, I get it up. Uh, early, and that's uh, under the username Adult Music Podcast. Uh, you can uh, also add yourself to our list there, and that'll be shared with you. Uh, now, if you can't see the full description or the links on uh, whatever app you're listening on, you can come over to our host site, which is Podbean, and then all the links and descriptions are uh, easy to see and follow. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please do follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, take a minute, give us a ranking or write a review. That'll help us uh, keep being listed in the browsing category recommendations. And that helps us grow our audience. And again, if you'd uh, like to contact us personally uh, directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. Yeah, but earlier you talked about um, owning uh, CDs, and I've finally mm. got my hands on Daniel Bernardson. Will be happy to hear this. I finally got hard copies of uh, the two Ranitsky. Oh, you got the Ranitsky um, CDs. Oh, I got okay. both of them, and right. we'll definitely get the third one when it comes out. We can't October. say when. We don't even know. He's not. October, we're not supposed I think. To say. Yeah. Oh, I'm not supposed to say that. Okay. Yeah, he said not to say. Forget and I said. He just that. said it. No. Okay. Forget. Forget he said that. No. Well, that's what he thinks. He's not sure. But yeah. anyway, because <laughs> he doesn't know. You know. And what's that? And let's not get into that. But I do have two hard copies of those now. Oh, that's good. And it turns out both of these albums were recorded at the same, um, in the same period of time. Right, over a few days. Uh, and I, last week, I had mentioned on the podcast um, that I thought that Volume 2 was recorded in the reverse order of um, that, that we heard them in. Right. Okay, and uh, Daniel, of course, wrote back to us. What did he say? Am I right? Well, he said that that was actually recorded first, uh, La Tempesta. Tempesta was first. Yeah. So I was wrong. Yeah, you were wrong. Oh, as usual. So anyway, here in the 26th episode, we've uh, we've definitely um, ascertained that I really don't know what I'm talking about. So I've decided to uh, give up uh, commenting on music and go into um, a field where that people are in, that people go into who don't know what they're talking about. And that is politics. Politics. I'll be running oh. for office <laughs> this autumn. I feel like that's uh, that's my calling because I don't know what I'm talking about. There you go. <laughs> it was a guess, though. Anyway, it was a conjecture. Daniel was very nice to. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, well, it was very nice to tell us because you know, actually, he had mentioned that you know if he, if that if we'd read the notes that we know, but actually, it doesn't say that the recording dates just say like the period. Of yeah, it time doesn't tell the us the recordings were made, and it doesn't tell us the, the order, order of the pieces. Yeah. Um, well, they're both really. You know, you want to check out both of these albums. Uh, yeah, really we hope you're listening to those. Listen to those first if you're on the beach and you're missing us. Okay, this yeah. summer. Listen to those albums both, and uh, I guess it's just that uh, the uh, La Tempesta is just so interesting and fun. 
Uh, yeah, I like that. Just, it grabs you in. Uh, that, that should be on, you know. That's on volume two. That should be on all kinds of uh, live performance programs. Uh, I don't see how you could go wrong with yeah, having as, that as piece As should in the there, other yeah. works. I think oh, yeah, they're sure. really good. Yeah, sure. But I think just to get the name Ranitsky into people's uh, minds and then they want to hear more. All, all the yeah. symphonies are really, really good. So. Yeah, we're interested in this project and we have uh, no uh, monetary reason to be. We're just genuinely interested. Yeah. So, you know, we yeah, want you to hear these, these works. Give them, uh, give them a listen. No one's listened to them for a couple hundred years and yeah. now you can hear, uh, you know, modern ensembles playing these works and uh, they're really, really good. Yeah, speaking of works that haven't been uh, heard in hundreds of years, there's quite a few of that, uh, quite a bit of that coming out now, which is kind of nice in yeah. classical music. Anyway, so so yeah, there we go. All right, so today we have in classical music we have an all French program, and I think in jazz is mostly French. So of course mostly we're going to call this episode French, French begin, me again, baby. baby. Because why? Because that was our most popular <laughs> episode. Most French popular Baby title, got, yeah. You know, yeah. it was our most popular title. That and the Fiesta one, for some reason, was our most popular title. So we're going to go for the big downloads once again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, shamelessly. Shamelessly going for the title. Because we're shameless. Oh, just wait. We're going to start uh, trying to uh, monetize soon, too. You're just, you're just going to hate us. <laughs> yeah, Maybe after the, uh, after the break. Cause, uh, keep listening, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We're going to well, try to I get think, some ads. We'll see. I've got some ideas for uh, mm. new jazz interviews and things in the fall. So uh, yeah, I got one or two ideas too. too. We'll so. see. And some yeah. things fall in our lap. It's kind of nice. It's been a really pleasant and surprising experience so far. Yeah. It's um, been a lot we're, of fun. Far, we're further along than we really thought we would be. We just, we'd just be talking out into the ether and, you know, yeah. 30 people in Japan would be listening to us. But we've got a lot of. Uh, Listeners around the world, especially yeah. in the USA, and that's kind of cool. USA is European big. listeners are starting to pick up. It's good. Europe is picking up, and India mm. has stayed strong. So, uh, all you listeners in India, thanks for uh, hanging yeah. in and listening to us there. Uh, at some point, we're going to have to get some kind of uh, Indian-influenced uh, music to talk about in there too. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. that. We, you know, we'll have to get an Indian guest on to help us. We could uh, do that as well. It. All right, send your emails to Adult Music Podcast. Yeah, gmail.com. Okay, yes. I'd be—I I know a bit about like Indian raga, but I'm not enough to be able to like kind of like dissect it and like you know kind of like explain it. You know, this performance is—I don't know—somebody with ears more attuned to that music than mine would have to talk about it. I can just enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> you know. All right. Anyway, all right. So anyway, let's get into classical music and let's get Frenched. Because we got an all French program in classical music today. He can't, can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading this book. Um, I think it's Jeffrey Eugenides, the uh, the Virgin Suicides, and uh, this one kid. It's pretty much high school age kids in, in that you know who are kind of telling the story, and this one guy makes out with a girl, and he kind of talks about how like she, she you know she was like French kissing him, like and. Um, wildly and all this stuff he says oh you know he said i felt like so it's, there's a lot of tonguing going on and he finally says i felt like a stamp <laughs> which i thought was a hilarious <laughs> comment <laughs> i've never heard anything like that i felt before. like a stamp yeah i felt like a stamp mm. well i had a very enjoyable week listening to these not only because it was all french music and i i pretty much liked it all but it was all sacd i have hard copies of all of these oh and these are all super audio CD recordings. Two of them on the Beast label, and one is on Chandos. And um, 
let me let me say something about SACD if listeners don't really know about this. An SACD has three layers of information on it. Now, the first layer is just regular CD information. So if you don't have an SACD player, you just have a CD player, uh, you can still play these. They'll just You'll just play the CD layer, and it'll sound like a CD. But if you have an SACD player, um, there are two layers of SACD information. One of them is the two-channel layer, which is the same as the CD layer, except that it's at much higher um, uh, sampling rate, and it sounds a lot cleaner and richer the sound is uh very focused. Would it be yeah in uh, yeah very DS, warm DSD DSD uh, recording DSD, format of course. Yeah, rather than yeah. PCM. But I don't know that it's just the DSD the the the, the format. I think that helps, but it's also the the higher sampling rate. It just sounds a lot. Well, that's what's involved warmer. in the format. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there are there are you know problems with that format in some people's opinion too. But uh, the people who enjoy it and both of us being in that category, I think I feel uh, yeah. more spaciousness and yeah. uh, a different sort of uh, presentation of high frequencies uh, in that format, in the really good recordings, the ones that are native DSD recordings. Yeah, yeah and I want to say something else about that, those high frequencies. Um, people say, well, why bother um, recording the high frequencies? People can't hear them. But it's believed that... The presence of the higher frequencies affects the way we hear the lower frequencies. We don't know this, but um, you, it probably does have some kind of effect. You don't really want to just dismiss things that you're not immediately aware of because they could I think be it's having the way some they, effect that you're not aware of. They bounce off the your ear hairs. You know. You think it's the ear hairs? I think it's the ear hairs. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Super Audio CD, by the way, has one more layer, and that is the uh, surround surround sound layer. And I actually have a, a five-channel and one subwoofer um, system. It's a small one, but it's from by Onkyo, and I uh, use that at the moment. I'm hoping to upgrade this um, within the next year or two. But um, so I can I can actually hear those. And talking about speaking about spaciousness, first of all, you're hearing the higher sampling rate and that nice warm sound, but now you're also getting a separation of of the stage. And the two rear channels are usually um, just kind of ambient. Um, so there's kind of like a, an echo. You want to keep those fairly quiet. Um, but it, it, it gives like a, a sense of even more presence and warmth. It's really wonderful. It's, you can kind of get a sense of like that, that the whole space is around you is being, you know, is being used. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. Now, they'll usually like label these recordings like 5.1. The 0.1 means that the subwoofer is being used, but all three of these recordings are 5.0. It seems like uh, classical music labels don't like using the subwoofer. Subwoofer, just, yeah, yeah. I'm not a fan myself. I understand yeah. the arguments for people who like it. I suppose if you listen to organ music or something, it's kind of... Uh, you know, yeah, you can really kind of... Necessary to get those lowest the, uh, frequencies. But, get uh, that chest cavity... Uh, yeah, feeling. And speaking of which, uh, you you hit the nail on the head there. If you have uh, surround sound, if you have like a five channel system, you definitely want to get a surround organ recording because those are the most spectacular sounding records there are. Because mm. uh, if you've ever walked into like a European church while the organ is being played, then the sound is you know it's coming from the pipes, but it's like bouncing off the walls yeah. everywhere, and you're the sort spatial, of submerged spatial, in it. Uh, yeah, features of it are really important. 
and that happens on the on surround sound organ recordings as well. So pick one up. I'll recommend one. How about um, uh, Masaaki Suzuki's first uh, volume one of his uh, Bach organ works oh, on yeah, that's the a good Beast one, yeah. label? That would be an excellent one to have. Yeah. It's got the Takata in D minor that everybody loves. You know, da 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 da. That yeah. one, the one they play in the haunted house music movies, even though they really shouldn't because shouldn't it's a spiritual that. work. That's right. Yeah, it's not scary. It's it's deeply spiritual, like everything Bach did. All right, so anyway, so Super Audio CD, there you go. All right. Now, the first recording we have is on the Beast label, and this is called La Clarinette Parisienne. And the uh, musicians here are Michael Collins on the clarinet and Noriko Ogawa on they the piano. They don't sound like Parisiennes, Collins and Ogawa. They are, but the thing is, their names I'm don't sound teasing. Parisian, yes. but the, the, their playing does. Yes, it's it does, uh, pretty yeah. remarkable. They're, this is a fantastic release. I liked this from beginning to end. And I really have nothing negative to say about the playing. In fact, I have something positive I want to say. Now, the thing is, I've heard Michael Collins play the clarinet like for 10, 20 years now. I've heard him on recordings, and he's always great. He's just a fantastic, he's got a great tone. Oh, yeah. His tone is he's, um Lovely. Yeah. So, yeah. and he's he's got a great musicality to him. And, Phrasing uh, is is great. I knew there was going to be no problem with this. Now, Noriko Ogawa, I've heard her play solo, and this is back in the two thousands or the late nineties. She was doing like Debussy solo piano recordings, and I thought they were eh, okay. So she wasn't really a, a favorite pianist of mine, but I thought she was just fantastic here. So I think she's. Uh, either matured a lot as a musician or maybe I just wasn't listening properly back in those days. I really don't know. But she sounds great on all of these recordings. Like she has a real feel for the color and the um timbre, the um mm. the, the, the the touch needed for to for French music. Okay. I so I just loved both of them together. This was just a fantastic release. Okay, it's it's kind of an interesting program because all of these works, except for the Poulenc, were written for um uh, the conservatoire as like test pieces for the students. Interestingly enough, all right, and they're all in different styles. Uh, it's kind of interesting. The first one is I'll explain that in a minute. They're all from except for the Poulenc too. They're all from around the uh, turn of the twentieth century, so the late eight nine the late eighteen hundreds, the early nineteen hundreds. Okay, so around a hundred years ago, one hundred twenty years ago now. Although a hundred years ago, I guess because. Um, yeah, the uh, Saint-Saëns is written in 1920, the year before he died. All right, anyway, let's start with Debussy, Première Rhapsodie for clarinet and piano. This was a test piece, and it really, uh, it's got, it's in Debussy's, and I he hated this expression, and I kind of don't like it to use it either, because I know he didn't like it, the impressionistic kind of um, feeling that he gets. Now, what it is, is like he's really all about timbre, tone color, things like this, so he's not really going to, make you kind of move your hands really fast on the keys on the clarinet or, or on the piano. Well, no, he does at times. But he's more about the tone, the sustained beauty of the sound, um, and that sort of thing. And uh, he's he's really looking for that. Now, remember, this was a test piece originally for um, students at the conservatoire, and um, it sort of tests that. Now, the this was also kind of like a new style of uh, composing at the time. And... Um, not everybody was into it, <laughs> okay. But uh, I like this piece a lot. It's it's not one of my favorite Debussy pieces, but I find it really enjoyable. It's it kind of has this kind of like nice sort of like um, sensuality to it, shall we say? It's really about its sound, 
Um, and uh, again, it's, I, I can't really say much, you know, except to praise the two musicians in all of these works. They just sound fantastic. Okay. The next work is by Charles-Marie Vidor. Now, he's really famous for his organ works. Uh, so this was a little unusual. Introduction at Rondo for clarinet and piano. Um, sort of a traditional style. Sansons wrote a lot of these introductions in Rondos too. And this was, um, you know, I rather, this was the first time I'd ever heard this piece. I, it was, it was immediately appealing. I, I liked it a lot. Um, yeah. Oh boy. I don't have my, uh, <laughs> I don't have my notes already here. You open your booklet to the notes and you get them in German. I don't understand what's, uh -uh. What, what this is saying. I hate when they do that. All right. I know they're in English here somewhere. One moment. Okay, I like this go. one. Um, I, the, he shows his uh, agility here, but yeah. um, I feel the strength of his playing, other than his lovely tone, is his phrasing. Yeah. Um, and then this one also has some lines that need to be more articulate. And, you know, Debussy has right. a lot of legato things. Right. They, those very sound really good in tones. They're yeah. very liquid. So here yeah. he has to articulate, but uh, what I wrote, it's articulation like melting butter. You know, so it's that's a good it's, it's yeah. clear. You can see through, you know, if you imagine you're pouring it on your broccoli or your popcorn, you can see yeah. through it. So it's you can hear everything. But yet yeah. it's so soft that, yeah. uh, you know, it just flows so well. Yeah, this one is different than the Debussy, though. It's like a contrast. It's a yeah. display piece very yeah. much. OK, so this, would, this would be one to here. see if the guys can the kids can. Uh, keep up in yeah. the conservatory okay now the centerpiece well maybe not this this and the poulenc uh the next piece is uh saint-sans camille saint-sans and i remember this is his the hundredth anniversary of his death this year and we're hearing quite a bit of his music pop up on mm. a lot of these recordings which kind of makes me happy um this one is a sonata for clarinet and piano opus get this 167 now by the way those of you who are, aren't aware of classical um terminology the opus number is the um the uh, number of the work in the order of publication not the order of composition, composition yeah. sometimes they're the same okay but the opus number tells you about the order that these works were published in and this becomes important in beethoven's music because um some of his early music was published later and has higher, you know, opus numbers, which is right. really weird. It makes it hard to figure out. But just keep that in mind, publication. This was written in 1920, the year before Sassons died, and it's very conservative. <laughs> it's, kind of a, mm. it's in four movements. Um, Sassons, interestingly enough, Sassons was kind of an enfant terrible when he was um, very young. Okay, he was kind of like, uh, you know, called out for doing these kind of weird things in music as the romantic that he was but here in his uh, older age he um he's in his 80s here i think um he uh was um very critical of debussy and that whole school and so he's writing a, a piece that really looks back to the past here um it's a it's a nice work though i liked it i thought the uh the second movement allegro animato is charming it's very short it's got a very uh, memorable melody um the lento movement, the uh, the slow movement, the third, um, is starts out dramatically, but then a lot of the um, the clarinet disappears, and this is one really wonderful passage where um, Ogawa is playing these arpeggios, and, and they're really sensitively played and uh, evenly, and the um, the you know the sensitivity of this music really comes out. I really enjoyed uh, 
hearing that passage from her. I think she executed it properly, you know, beautifully. Um, and that, that for me made this whole performance really fantastic. I like the Lento because of the, the low register, uh, fullness, uh, you know, you don't, you don't hear the, you know, regular clarinet in that range a lot, but his sound was so expansive and Mm. full in that, you know, it, it almost getting into like a bass clarinet kind of, uh, tonality and uh i was kind right. of sucked I was into like that, that tone of it yeah it was really yeah nice. that reed that vibrating reed yeah you kind of hear the reed vibrating yeah. at, the, at that lower tonality i really like that about reed instruments when they get into the lower end yeah, and that happens here okay and uh so four movement work and it's it's conservative but it's very enjoyable um, it's an odd work for him to be writing in 1920 when all this modernism was happening. It's, a, it's really a romantic work. Um, but he was, um, I don't know, he, uh, he got old-fashioned in his old age. Something Foray did not do, by the way. He, he's not on this album, though. Okay, next we have another um, conservatory piece, André Messager, Solo de Concours, for clarinet and piano. And after that is a piece by Henri Rabot, also called Solo de Concours. They were both written, they were written like two years apart from each other. Um, again, these are, these are fairly athletic works, um, mm-hmm. highly melodic. I like them both, really. Um, it's the Messager is just this really joyful work. It just made right away. It's just this happy kind of like, uh, upbeat rhythm and this happy melody that really put me in a good place. Um, so that's the messager, by the way. I, I liked it a lot. That one shows um, his uh, after the since I end the that uh, lento. Now, now yeah. he's going like the opposite. He's way up in the high register uh, right. on this, this one. This is the clarinetist you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. and it really shows he he keeps that real centeredness. You know, because clarinet can get ugly in the wrong amateur right. person, it can. and it can get yeah. on your nerves, but. Uh, not for Collins. Uh, when he gets up high, he keeps that centered tonality. The timbre is still really beautiful. And uh, yes, yeah, so I thought, oh, wow. You know, he keeps he keeps his, you know, the qualities of his tone no matter where he is on the instrument. So uh, yeah. I enjoyed now, Col- that. In Collins piece. is an old hand at this, but there are young clarinetists now today, too, who are just fantastic. I don't think we're ever going to hear a bad clarinet performance ever again on re- on record no. you know unless we go to hear like our friends players <laughs> no. but you know I or, mean, or even them they're really fantastic a lot of them you, are really good the thing to me the most essential thing with any yeah. you know jazz classical any style or you know popular music too do you like that person's sound yeah you know? uh yeah. if it's their voice uh you know uh do you like that and then if it's an instrument you know, do you like the sound of their instrument? And then, you know, one sign of, you know, that sort of mastery is, you know, keeping, you know, that character that you have on the extremes of the instrument. Uh, it's also, you know, a uh, a skill to be able to change your tone when desired. But, yeah. you know, normally you're not, in, especially in classical music, you're not going to want that change uh, through a composition unless it's called for. And I, I just felt like when he gets up there where the clarinet can become, uh, you know, sometimes a bit abrasive, but no, uh, it's just like, oh, it's it's still fluid and uh, really beautiful, so. Yeah. Okay, so the, the Henri Rabot um, solo de concours is, this, this, the way they, this program is recorded seems to be... Uh, you know, modernist, you know, conservative, you know, or, mm. you know, so this one is kind of the opposite of the messager, which, um, 
Yeah, it's just lightheartedly brilliant. But the Rabot is uh, again, it's uh, he he was one who really hated like Debussy's music. So he he's he's in the older style of um. There's no sense of like musical like you know coloring the uh, the tone in this piece. You know he's mm-hmm. uh, more about like line. Um, the colors are really strong, but they're not like kind of soft or liquid or anything like that. Everything's bold. Okay, the outlines are clear. It's it's almost like a you know the the Mozart rules with modern um um uh, harmony. You know, hmm. it's, you know, so, but Mozartian type lines. Uh, this is all about agility and strong breath control, as I guess all of these pieces are. It's a nice piece, though. I don't want to, I'm not saying just, see, what was conservative at the time isn't necessarily conservative for us. It's just old. Okay. So right. it kind of has this, I think we mentioned this in the interview with um, Daniel and uh, Marek. Marek, we, uh, Marek, we, um, uh, we said that old things t- tend to get this kind of patina of age to them and they all sound really good because the you know the energies that were shaping them are all gone you know so we're just kind of listening to it as a relic from the past now Mm. um and it may may still talk to us and hopefully it does but um we don't really notice like we're not really into this whole like battle of which was going to be the you know the uh the dominant style or things like that like they were okay all right next comes uh Francis Poulenc ends our recording with two works. The first one is a um, sonata for two clarinets, and it's very short. It's in three movements, and it's five minutes long in, in its entirety. Um, I really loved this. It was you really like kind of yeah, but it was really different. It was strident, and it was playful, and it wanted. It was like a little kid that wanted to annoy people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of had that quality to it, but the playfulness made it really enjoyable to me um it kind of reminded me of this movie um that i watch every year it's um by jean vigo it's an old silent movie it's called zero de conduite zero for conduct it's about a 30 minute silent movie about sort of a rebellion by the students in a boarding school in france in the 1920s and um (laughs) Hey, we we both teach at a at a school, Russ and I. So I like to watch this before the uh, beginning of the uh, the new school year to get in the the proper mood <laughs> for mm. for doing my job. <laughs> you know? but this this uh, piece reminded me of the um, the uh, the lack of respect for authority that that uh, movie showed. Okay, I kind of I kind of enjoyed that a lot. Um, it, yeah, it seems like he kind of wants to annoy people with this piece from that period it's not going to be annoying to us we're used to a lot kind of more strident music now um but um it's it, it just sounds it sounds really fun i've got my booklet in front of me and um um Poulenc's biographer Henri Hell described this piece as leaving an acid taste that delicately annoys the ear <laughs> Yeah, it's kind well, of an interesting description. I thought, you know, my when I listened to it, my first impression was there's one too many clarinets here. Oh, I didn't. I don't think <laughs> so. Know, I think you needed the other. Um, one. But you know, thinking like back as as a trumpet player, when mm. we come up, everyone uh, comes through the Arben book, and you know, part of the Arben book is uh, the duets for trumpet, and so you know, playing with another uh, trumpet player and, and getting the you know, the two in- same instruments to meld together. And uh, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but I haven't really thought about it 
for lots of other instruments. So hearing two clarinets, you know, together is something uh, I'm not really uh, used to hearing. But I I did like the composition. I mean, mm. so not having you know any uh, there's no piano or harmonic backup. It's just the yeah, there's clarinets. no piano on this one. So yeah. it's all the interplay. And uh, as far as the composition goes, it's pretty interesting. And there's a lot of you know things to uh, keep your attention here. As far as the you know, when I'm listening to French music, as we've said before, and here, you know, we're focusing on the timbre and the tone interplay. So here, I think the second movement is the one that's most enjoyable for me because uh, there's, you know, more space and I kind of like the undulating kind of yeah. like accompaniment in that yeah. one as well. I like that sound yeah. from the clarinet. There are certain sounds that we, we I've talked about this with you before, but not on the podcast. There are certain sounds in the clarinet that are like like the bubbling sound that it can do, like right, you know, that yeah, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. The champagne, and then there's that, yeah. yeah, the undulating sound that you hear like in the andante in this one too. Now, if uh, listeners are are afraid of the the big bad strident music, don't worry. This is only five no, minutes not, long. It's not that it's, strident. No, no, it's, it's not kind of fun. It's, um, yeah, it's I just fun. don't know. No, I, yeah. I've never heard two only two clarinets playing together. So, right in that sense, yeah, it you know, okay, cool, check yeah. it out, and it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, the melodies I can't really call them melodies. They're sort of um, angular, sort of like it reminded me a little bit of because um, um, there's a clarinet in um, Stravinsky's um, Symphonies of Wind Instruments mm. at the very beginning of that. You know, the, the the very first thing you hear, it reminded me of that sort of sound. If people don't know that, they're not going to know this, but I don't know. Anyway, the recording ends with another piece by uh, Poulenc. This one from near the end of his uh, life. In fact, the year before he died, um, 1962. This is the only um, post-1920 work that we have on this um, recording. And um, this one's a bigger work. It's 13 minutes long, not very big, but for clarinet and piano. And it's uh, more elegiac in tone. I really think it was I think it was written for... Um, I can look this up. It was it was written for someone in in memoriam. I think it was of Hon- Art, you know, Arthur Honegger, the Swiss composer. Oh, Honegger, yeah. Um, who who had died? Okay, and um, Poulenc it said uh, struggled with depression like later in his life, and uh, this piece is a bit melancholy. Uh, it's really it's really nice. It's I like the uh, mm. romanza. The the melodies in that are really lovely. Yeah, it's a good word for this piece. It's lovely, and it's it's a bit um, it's a bit sad. Okay, yeah, the middle movement romanza is nice. The allegro con fuoco at the end leaves it's us on a yeah. It's exciting and has a nice uh, memorable melody to it too that really stuck in my ear. So I enjoyed that as well. All right, so total thumbs up for me for this recording. I love this. I can and the sound quality was fantastic. Also, I yeah. really. Uh, it's warmly recorded. All the detail is um, very present. Um, a must hear, I would say, if you're interested in trying something new, give this a listen. Yeah, give it a bet for clarinet. Uh, nice yeah. recording of that instrument. You can't beat it. Can't beat it. Michael Collins, one of the best out there. Okay. But he's, he's getting competition now. There's some younger guys. All right. Number two. Here we go. This is another beast recording. Um... This is um, piano trios by Ravel and Saint-Saëns. We get Ravel's only piano trio in A minor, written in 1914. And Camille Saint-Saëns, again. Okay, we have uh, the... uh, I want to say the you know it's the anniversary of his death. I want to try to come up with a word for that, but uh, it's not really a thing. It's the 100th anniversary of his death. His second piano trio. Okay, now first of all, let me just kind of... The Ravel piano trio is really one of my favorite works, like, 
ever. I know it very well. I, I've um, attempted to play it. I never really um, kind of was able to play this with other people, but I, I read through the piano score um, it, and things like that. And um, so I know this fairly well. And the Sansons, uh Piano Trio Number 2, I only know his piano trios from one other recording I've heard, and that was by the Floristan Trio. And he, they recorded both of them. He, he wrote only two um, piano trios. So that one's a little less familiar, but um, no worries here. This ensemble, the Sitkovetsky Trio, and they are made up with the of the violinist Alexander Sitkovetsky, who's fairly well known. He's uh, he appears as a concert soloist a lot, and he, he's recorded quite mm-hmm. a bit of um, quite a few concertos. And his um, the rest of the trio is Isang Enders on cello and Wu Qian on piano, and I don't know either of them, but. They're all fantastic. Now, okay, how, how, what can I say? The Ravel Piano Trio, this is one of the better recordings I've heard. I really enjoyed this a lot. Now, for me, I have this funny sort of thing with this piece. The best recording of this piece, the most beautifully recorded was, I think, again, we mentioned the Floristan Trio 20 years ago. And I loved that recording except for one thing. I thought there was one big gum. Interpretative error in the Florestan Trio's um, uh, performance of this piece from about 20 years ago now um, on their fantastic album. They, um, there's a moment in the um, third movement, the uh, Pasakaya, where the piano drops out and you hear only the violin and cello playing this really mournful melody. And it's just this magical moment. Ravel is exceptionally good at producing these sorts of. Uh, moments in his music mm. and um it comes off really well here but in that floristan trio album the the violinist and the cellist play it in this kind of like vibrato in almost anemic way and i thought they kind of lost the magic when they did that mm. and it kills me because i love that performance except for that one part so i'm always looking for a great performance that has that part played what what I think is properly. And it's played properly here. All right, let me um, go through this a little bit. In general, this trio, um, Sitkovetsky has a really beautiful sound. He's clearly the uh, the main person here. He's a, He's got a beautiful tone, and your ear is generally attracted to his playing. Not that he's... Um, playing louder or you know hogging the spotlight or anything like that he's not but he's got this uh, really attractive tone that kind of makes you even you know pay attention to what he's doing mm. the other two are excellent too uh the cellist is great and the pianist Wu Qian is also good she has a she when she plays quiet passages she plays them very very quietly i had some volume issues at the beginning of this piece because it starts quietly with those chords mm. Um, in the first movement, and I had the um, I was like, oh, this is recorded very quietly, and I turned it up, and within two minutes, I was like, yeah, blowing my ears out. I had to um, <laughs> turn the uh, the um, the volume down. So I I kind of feel like there's a little too wide a range of uh, dynamics in this piece. I don't think she should be playing that quietly, but it's not a big problem. I mean, it's uh, she, she her playing is very good. She's a very neat player and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment okay so the modere starts very quietly but uh once so all the instruments are in um you're you're hearing uh everything 
really well. Now there are three instruments playing, you know, often two are accompanying while one gets a solo, but you're always aware of what all of these musicians are doing. This recording is crystal clear. Um, it's, it's just fantastic. I really enjoyed hearing all the detail because I love this score so much too. Uh, so that was great. The Pantum, uh, the second movement, um, yeah, beautifully played. I, it's, um, I mean, I would say it's a little cautious, but I'm going to say more about that in the fourth movement. The third movement, Pasakaya, is my favorite. Um, Pasakaya, of course, is a repeating bass line. And uh, we hear that bass line being handed off to various instruments as these instruments go over them. Very sensitively played. I really loved it. Some of the quieter passages were very, very quiet. Okay. Now, the fourth movement, the finale... Um, in the wrong hands can be really chaotic because there are a lot of loud passages where the um, three musicians are playing uh, different things. Now, in this case, um, the three of these um, players keep everything in order. Like they take a more, like I said, conservative approach. They play, they don't really play at a very high volume. None of them is drowning each other out and it's fantastic. You can hear all of the detail. Um, this is a movement that can in the wrong hands can go off the rails, okay, because of the, those passages where the piano is really kind of banging out these chords while everybody else is playing trills or and things like that. That doesn't happen here. But to be honest, when I hear this piece, I really kind of like it to be on the edge of going off the rails, and hmm. I'm just not hearing that here. It's not a problem. It sounds great. I, I really enjoyed this performance a lot, but I'm just saying, okay? so um, Just saying. I think the uh, Florestan Trio... Um, on their old Hyperion recording uh, hit that part beautifully okay uh, they they played that really well but uh, this is going to be I think my go-to recording for a while I really like this performance a lot of the Ravel Piano Trio okay next is the uh, Saint-Saëns Piano Trio number two now I was less um, uh, familiar with this so I'm really hearing this after boy it has to be like more than 10 years i'm not hearing it so it's like a new piece for me um this one is from the year 1892 so it's um late romantic period he's he's um he's still in his um romantic style he never really got out of it this is a five movement work and it's um got some really beautiful stuff in it the allegro non, non troppo is plays out excuse me plays out like a um sonata form um, enjoyable enough, but I think the real magic starts coming in the middle movements, the Allegretto, Andante con Moto, which was really gorgeous. This was the, uh, you know, the, the middle of the whole work, um, and the uh, Grazioso Poco Allegro, which has this really charming melody uh, to it that kind of got my attention. I was a little surprised because I'm not really used to hearing this from uh, Saint-Saëns. Um, and the Allegro at the end... Um, yeah, it is, is a good send-off, but I was really kind of captivated by the middle three movements of this work. Again, very clear um, playing. I didn't find, like, um, the piano to be very quiet in this particular recording. I thought it, the balance was really nice. Again, my ear keeps being drawn towards Sitkovetsky's violin. He has an exceptionally beautiful tone, and uh, you, you keep wanting to hear that. He's really good as a soloist, but he, he doesn't steal the spotlight by any means. I enjoyed this whole recording. Really great. Well, I'm a big fan of uh, piano trio music. It's yeah, probably my my favorite uh, chamber music uh, sort of format. Um, and I like both of these pieces. I've listened to yeah, numerous recordings good. before. Um, 
What one of my favorite uh, groups uh, ensembles is uh, called the Trio Wanderer, and they've recorded. Oh, I know them. Yeah. Just about you know every every piano trio that's out there uh, very well. And uh, I, I guess it was not. I guess it was last year, not this year. It was right at the beginning of the uh, Corona phase when uh, the lockdowns and you know, stay inside or else you die of the sniffles thing was going on. And uh, that spring, uh, I was doing a lot of uh, daily work uh, indoors. And, uh, you know, when you do your listening of different kinds of music, there's certain moods or uh, situations, uh, circumstances you need for listening to various kinds of music. And I like orchestral music a lot, but you can't listen to orchestral music while you're doing work. For one thing, I want to listen to it on my big system when right. I'm listening to the full orchestra. And so I've got to, you know, go down and sort of lay back on the big leather sofa and, you know, I'm not going to get anything done. And, um, but, you know, piano trio, I can listen to, you know, in headphones or on my smaller uh, system at my, you know, my work desk sort of, and it's also, you know, it's sort of contained dynamically, so that I can do other things, but still appreciate the music. So I listen to a lot of Baroque music and piano, piano trio music or, you know, sonatas and things while I'm doing other things. So that last year's spring, I got really got into uh, just going all out every day. I wanted to find a new piano trio composition that I hadn't listened to. That's when I found mm. the, the uh, trio wanderer. And I liked that. And I had listened to both of these works there and, uh, yeah, so I, I like these performances a lot, especially though I really, uh, the Ravel here is my favorite just because yeah. of the- It's beautifully uh, recorded too. Yeah, God. The, the way the attention to the, in the composition, but also in the performance of the contrasting timbres, um, the violin and the cello, uh, you get those different string personalities that are, right. you know, alternated in the voices here. And then- in the performance, really great dynamics that also the recording quality brings out. Right. And a lot of passionate phrasing there too. So I thought this is a really excellent uh, Ravel performance and recording. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes I like this one too. Uh, It's really robust playing in the sound. Uh, The piano is really quite dominant in here, I feel. Um, yeah. And Sanson himself was a pianist. Yeah, I guess I would so, uh, follow. Uh, you know? The balance is a little bit different in you know in the writing compared to the. I, I like this piece mm. too. I, it's a really good recording, but I would get this one uh, for the Ravel because I felt it's really impassioned and it feels right. somehow new and fresh. Even if you know this, you yeah, know, I would agree with that. To that it it really came alive for me, and uh, the tonality of the strings. I, I would. The, the the violin is on the edge and then when the cello comes in and it sort of mellows that out and, and the balance of the timbres is really nice. Uh, so, um, yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed this interpretation of it a lot. Yeah, I just want to say anything I said about the Ravel, I was really like nitpicking, you know, but because overall, this is a really good performance. Mm. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's very, um, it's, they're not going through the motions here at all. This is really, uh, you know, feeling uh, this music, uh, it's almost like the, you get a feeling like this, the first time they're, they're engaged, playing through yeah. it or something, it's impassionate and passion. So, um, yeah, the Sanson's work, I just want to say, I think, um, for me personally, it's going to take a l- more listening. I thought it was a really good work, but it's very long. Well, it's, actually, it's not, it's about the same length as the, uh, 
Ravel, but it's in five movements, and it's, it's a you know the first movement yeah. is a straight sonata. So, so if you just kind of the, the forms are all familiar to me. So I, sometimes when that happens, I'm listening to the form and not really to the detail, like what's happening in the music. Whereas in modernist music, I'm always listening to the the actual kind of content. You know, right? It's it's so I, I think this uh, is going to pay off after a few more listens. I got to get more familiar with this work because I, I did like it a lot, and, that, and it's a beautiful recording. It's really an ideal performance to hear it on. So so far, we're uh, batting a, a thousand here, as we would say in baseball. I think uh, holy cow! Got some, holy cow! <laughs> the great Phil Rizzuto. I, I did. I never met him, but I met his daughter once. Yeah. Did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh wow! What was she like? Um, did she say holy cow too? Or? No, she didn't. No, yeah, she okay. didn't say much. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What was the uh, situation that you met her? That in? was a place I was working when I was in university, and she came in and her. You know, she brought down the name Rizzuto, and of course, probably everyone asks, you know, oh, are you related yeah. oh, to? You were, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's yeah, my the, dad. The commentator yeah, so, for the New York Yankees yeah. back in the day when back we were day, showing yeah. our age now. Yeah, yeah for you New Yorkers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was also their baseball. second baseman, I think, back in the 1950s, actually, um, long before we were born. Uh, along with yeah. that uh, baseball image, uh, actually, I mm. played a gig last night, and yeah. uh, the first one in a while, but unfortunately, it was in a place. Where also there was a simulcast of the Olympic baseball final, where the Japanese trounced the Americans. <laughs> yeah, so oh, good for so, them. It's their first ever gold medal in baseball. Yeah, yeah. And they certainly deserve it. Holy cow! I was thinking at that time, but uh, there was there was a newspaper yeah. article about uh, if anybody knows baseball out there, Sadaharu O. If you're our yeah. age, you remember Sadaharu O. The the uh, home run king in Japanese uh, baseball, and really the all-time home run king, yeah. except that Americans don't like to uh, kind of admit that because they say he was playing in a in Japan. But um, he had 828 home runs in his career. And anyway, he was in the news because he's still around. He's still alive. And he was very happy about seeing Japan win a gold medal. He thought that was a big uh, achievement. You know, so. But baseball fans don't listen to music very well. I had like all these, you know, <laughs> cool Lydian scales in this one solo that I thought, like, you know, this is really, you know, people should be impressed by this, but if only I was no, there. some guy like scratching himself was, was more interesting, you know. So, yeah. anyway, yeah. they always do that, they scratch themselves, don't they? Yeah, yeah, I don't know what, what's that all about. I wasn't I scratching, oh, both my hands were playing yeah. music, but oh well, yeah, okay, good for you. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the last of the classical choices is by um, the 20th century French composer Henri Dutilleux. Dutilleux, D-U-T-I-L-L-E-U-X. You can look it up on the on our uh, our um, you know playlist. Now he was um, he's sort of an interesting character. He his music uh, is very unique in that he went his own way at a time when uh, Pierre Boulez was dominating. French musical culture and uh, demanding that everybody write in the um, the uh, Schoenbergian 12-tone dodecaphonic uh, serial style. And uh, Dutilleux didn't do that, so of course he didn't really get played much. But people championed his music, um, and he, um, from around 1950 on, he, he didn't write very many pieces, but they're all very um, um, carefully like orchestrated and um, detailed and uh, every one of them is just this jewel okay now before 1950 um he uh was a you know, sort of like debussy writing works like claire de lune he was writing sort of more 
ordinary music. And um, we're getting some early works by him on this album, although Le Loop was written with the ballet, uh, Le Loop, The Wolf. This is the name of this album is um, Le Loop. It's a 30-minute ballet. It uh, means The Wolf in French. Ballet in one act and three tableaux. Okay. And this is the first time I've ever heard this work. And uh, it's 1953, so this is after his first symphony. This is really when he started um, realizing his mature style. Although this particular work doesn't sound to me like it's in his mature style. It, it sort of sounds more like it's uh, you know functional for the ballet. It it doesn't really have his. Well, I can't really say it has his fingerprints all over it. It doesn't really sound like it's kind of because his work is very structural. And here I think he's writing for the dancers. This is a uh, this ballet. It's kind of an interesting um, scenario. It's it, the the story of the ballet that he's setting here is a man and a woman are getting married, and uh, the man and while their wedding procession is going through the woods, the uh, man uh, casts his eye on a gypsy girl and falls in love with her, and uh, decides he's going to run off with her. She was a gypsy woman. Yeah. 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 Just if you don't if you don't understand that, just got to listen to that listen song. Listen to that song, will, yeah, yeah. You'll understand why he did that. And uh, I, I've read the, you know, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame de Paris, the Victor Hugo book, and um, Esmeralda is presented as she's a gypsy woman too. She's presented as a quite an alluring figure herself. Yes. All the men are kind of like running after her, and one of them doesn't like her at all. The the priest, but anyway, that figures. Anyway, um, so anyway, the man runs off with the woman and um, pretends that he's been transformed into a wolf. So he he leaves the wolf <laughs> to marry uh, his uh, his his bride, and uh, which she does, I guess. And um, they they go they go to the room to 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 get it on, but then the villagers kind of come in and they uh, the huntsman says explains what happened, and I guess the uh, the bridegroom has uh, second thoughts. And is going to, uh, you know, he admits that he, you know, that the wolf is a real wolf and that he wasn't transformed into a wolf. She thinks he was transformed into a wolf, so she marries him anyway. So Beauty and the Beast kind of thing. So anyway, yeah. she's a little mad about that. And she decides, uh, you know, I'm going to stay with the wolf. <laughs> so the third <laughs> act uh, comes up and uh, they get their little dance thing. But then the uh, the hunters come. They, they kill the wolf and she dies defending the wolf. Unhappy ending. But the, musically, this ballet doesn't sound terribly unhappy. It's got a lot of um, sort of um. It it, it kind of sounds sort of through composed, sort of like Debussy's uh, ballet Jeu, which is about like a tennis match, and uh, it's got a lot of um, kind of standard um, uh, dance elements in it, like polkas and waltzes and that sort of thing. Um, it's also got, it's got a lot of circus music as well, too. The wolf can apparently do magic tricks, like he's doing magic tricks at the beginning of the, um, you know, I guess the, the the wolf has these human qualities, I guess. You know, I, I guess I'd have to see the ballet to see how they actually stage this to really understand what's going on. Anyway, we're in a fairy tale land here. Um, okay, so anyway, I should mention, before I give my verdict on this, that this, um, Recording is by the Symphonia of London, conducted by John Wilson. It's on the Chandos label. Now, this ensemble has given us some pretty amazing recordings in the last few years. Not least of which, the best of which, is um, a recording of the uh, Respighi works, the um, Pines of Rome, Fountains yeah. of Rome, 
and uh, Roman festivals, which I just love. Okay, that's also on SACD. Nice yeah. yeah, they also did one about uh, French orchestra works. There's an English string uh, music one, and then there's a, one of uh, Korngold's, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold's um, symphony in F sharp, F sharp major, I think it is, or F sharp minor. I don't remember. Anyway, so this is one of their recordings. Um, and as is always the case with them, it's in spectacular sound. This sounds great, and on Super Audio CD, too, the, the separation is just really clean and just beautiful. It's a pleasure to listen to. All right, musically, this ballet, um, I thought it, I didn't think it was terribly memorable. It was good, um, not, uh, but it didn't really stick in my head. I think this is a work that would benefit from you seeing the dancers as well as hearing the music, and I think uh, Du you thought the same thing. He didn't allow orchestras to perform this work without the uh, ballet performance until the mm. end of his life. He sort of signed off on that. It's an early work, and I think it was it was more functional than in his um, very sort of, um, you know, rarefied style. Um, it, it's very good. It sounds great. Um, but it's a little standard. It's not really what I expect from him. So I thought, I, I thought it was good. It's worth hearing. I thought it's big for a ballet. If you know, yeah. if when I listened to it, if you if I didn't know it was a ballet, I wouldn't have guessed hmm. because I thought I don't know if it's just this ensemble think, or the I recording. Think it would have been hard to follow if you it's didn't like, know it was a ballet. Though. It's like this is big. Um, the orchestration is is large. It doesn't sound like you know. I'm just yeah, it's a pretty what, big orchestra. I I couldn't imagine someone you know a ballerina coming out on tippy toes. There's something bigger happening. So I thought it's kind of majestic, even cinematic in some places uh, but what i liked about it because this was first listen for me and so i haven't really gotten used to the where it's going and the flow of it but i did enjoy the contrasting themes so i could see once i you know listened to it and i saw how the changes are going through i can see how it's related to you know sort of different dances and things like that but right mm-hmm. those sort of changes of themes and tempos um kept it really interesting from a composition point for me so yeah yeah i i loved the performance and the recording and i think this will repay um repeated listenings which i think i'm gonna have to do okay this mm. is the first time i've ever heard this like i said and i think i liked it but it didn't stick and um it may take time this happens to me sometimes there is music that i've um I think of the music of Olivier Messiaen. I remember when I first heard his music, I didn't really think anything of it. But over years, I started to really like it. It took a long time, but it, it finally sunk in, and now I just really love it because I kind of get it now. Mm. And this, you know, maybe this work will be something like that. Due to use music, his mature music is not easy. Um, it's not difficult on the ear, but it's it's also a bit demanding intellectually to kind of follow, you know, so... This isn't a work like that, though. This is this is an easier work to follow. The, the music changes, the rhythms change. It's sort of um, as the uh, the scenario changes, I think. So it's sort of um, easier to easier to listen to. All right, the remaining three works on this um, recording are orchestrations of three works for solo instrument and piano. These were the first one is a sonatine for flute and originally for piano, but here it's orchestrated. Um, the orchestrator, by the way, is uh, Kenneth Hel- Hesketh, Kenneth Hesketh, um, who's around our age, and he orchestrated all three of these. Now, the sonatine for flute and piano is probably Dutille's um, most f- 
performed and most famous work, much to Dutilleux's chagrin, because he felt like uh, <laughs> his later works were more, you know, sort of like Debussy, like everybody knows Claire de Lune, but that's not really representative of who he was, especially in his, um, after he he composed Prelude mm-hmm. de l'Apremédie d'Enfant, and he started doing all those fantastic orchestra works like La Mer and then Nocturnes and the piano preludes and things like that. Anyway, Dutilleux was um, pretty famous for this work. It's not really in his mature style, but it's very appealing. It's a very athletic work for the flute. Um, I'm so used to hearing this in the flute and piano version. Uh, A lot of people have uh, recorded it that the orchestration kind of took me aback a bit. I had to kind of adjust a bit to hear this. It's because, you know, with the piano, you hear the the hammering, you know, but here it's like it's a little softer. The the orchestrator went for a kind of... um, a more pastel sort of um, approach, really, in all three of these these works. Right. I, I don't know that that uh, served the music well, but it certainly made it sound bigger. And the flute is definitely the uh, main attraction here without the piano. Mm-hmm. So there was that. Let me just go on here. Um, the sonata for oboe is um, from 1947, also not in his mature style. It was written a little after the sonatine. This is in three movements, but nevertheless, it's about the same length as the sonatine. It's just mm-hmm. in these three contrasting movements. Pretty straightforward. I, again, the orchestration is a little odd for me. And the Sarabande et Cortege is a two-movement work from 1942. It's very early. Uh, the Sarabande, an old um, dance style. I, I really like the melody he came up with for this one. And the Cortege, which is a march, kind of starts out like that. And then some... Rather um, wildly, I thought. I, I thought this is a pretty appealing work. Actually, I like this one the best of the three. Now, I actually do like the the flute sonatine a lot, but I prefer it in its um, flute and piano version. This is very richly recorded, beautiful sound all the way through. I'm gonna want to get used to some of these um, these newly orchestrated works because I I do love this recording, and I want to. I'd like. I think it's gonna be worth getting to know these a little better. So all in all, I would say this is appealing. It didn't really strike me the first time I heard it, but I think it's going to be something that will repay repeated listening. Yeah, I enjoyed this. Uh, I don't. I didn't know any of these uh, compositions uh, or anything. You got to hear uh, the, the the chamber versions. Yeah, I'd like to hear that. Um, yeah. But you know, Adam Walker on flute, uh, his technique oh, right. and sound is always uh, great. Yeah. I wanted to mention him because he was he was featured on our uh, French yeah. Bee Baby one yeah. episode. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot so, he's on uh, this as well. Yeah, the second Adam uh, here, but uh, yeah, he so he always cuts through. I mean, his technique and passion uh, in the the flute lines is great here. Yeah, so I like I good. like this piece. Uh, it's mysterious, energetic, and playful. Right. The oboe sonata. I was um, I found this one kind of brooding. Um, mm. and I, from what I like to hear from the oboe, it didn't really give me a lot of, uh, satisfaction. I, I, I listened to it and I thought, mm, I was kind of indifferent to it, but I really did, uh, enjoy the, uh, Sarabande because of the bassoon yeah, me too. and, uh, especially yeah. the, the first movement. Uh, I, you rarely do you hear a bassoon anyway in, in any, uh, length at any length and here it's really a beautiful bassoon. And uh, so the first movement, especially, yeah, the the timbres are nice and the the bassoon just sounds really, really great. Uh, it's gotta yeah, be- I should have mentioned the bassoon is the solo instrument in this yeah. work. I didn't mention it. It's not in the title. So, okay. Uh, so I really like that. The second movement is also nice. It's a bit more playful, but the first movement 
to really, you know, hear like, oh, the bassoon can really sound, you know, nice, not just some sort of special effect in a kind of, you know, a double read kind of a punctuation thing. Yeah, it's really a nice spotlight. (laughs) If you're a bassoon player, you, you know, you definitely want to have this piece in your repertoire. And I liked it a lot. So it was, it was really enjoyable to listen to. I liked it too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I liked uh, anyway John Wilson. I'll be following everything these these this ensemble does. I think they're just fantastic. You know? Yeah, and these are great. These have all been great recordings. By the way, if uh, listeners want to do some extra listening, John Wilson and the Symphonia of London, their Respighi recording from 2020, I believe it came out last year, is absolutely fantastic. If you are blessed as I am with surround sound, this is a Super Audio CD. There's a magical usually like when you hear like a surround sound recording um, in classical, the, the, the rear speakers are ambient and the front ones are just kind of the, the orchestra and they're just spread out a little more because you have the, the center channel as well. But in this particular recording, there's the second movement of the um, um, Festa Romana, the Roman festivals, uh, depicts a pilgrimage to Rome uh, by Christian pilgrims. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where they first see the, uh, the church that they're, they're making the pilgrimage to through the trees and uh it's to the left of where they're walking and i know this because the church bells ring out in this at one moment and it's in the the left rear channel and the front left channel and it's just this magical surround effect i was really impressed by mm-hmm. this i really love hearing it so that was like a a nice use of surround sound there they kind of painted the um the image that uh, Respighi was trying to put across. I wonder if they actually do that in the uh, performances too. They have the um, bells in the back of the auditorium. That'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. That's it for classical this week. And on to jazz. Let's go. Well. Are we Frenching it up? Well, you know, as I said, I'm a bit in a a, uh, quagmire of things with jazz because there's a lot of things i'm really i know are coming out i have this huge list of things but uh they're not available yet they're coming out in august late august early september there's teaser tracks out there and i thought well uh we were going to do a french theme and there were a couple of uh french things that i had noticed but i wasn't necessarily um going to listen to right away or anything but then i said okay french here's french one french two and then another thing well i'll talk about that when we get to it just had sort of uh popped out a little bit late on the schedule just because of the way things are going in the music business so i sort of put uh, a couple things together that i thought would fit with the french theme uh with two French pianists who sort of have a foot in both worlds of classical music and jazz music. Uh, So I think it fits the French theme and uh, it sort of straddles uh, not really a mainstream. Most as you'll listeners who uh, have listened to most of our things have figured out, probably I'm sort of a mainstream, uh, you know, jazz aficionado. I mainly stick with, uh, sort of uh, post-bop and modern jazz things that have a foot in the tradition, sort of stay out of electronic-influenced jazz, uh, any of the new trends that sort of have recitations and things that I sort of find trendy and annoying. Um, and I'm always looking for, uh, 
you know, new upcoming players who might not get noticed. And also, uh, you know, I wish there were more things coming out of uh, America, uh, the birthplace of jazz, but there's a lot, seems a lot of new releases coming out of Europe and uh, here and there, uh, which I find interesting. Uh, and we've featured some French uh, things, uh, especially on the jazz and people label. We have the, uh, was it the Belmondo? brothers and uh we had oh yeah uh, that, yeah that was a fantastic release that was that's a great one of my release and we jazz had, records um, of the year actually the, uh, new what was the uh, french uh, pianist we had a couple weeks ago too and um well we so, had uh, brian charrette on the organ too don't forget yeah yeah we, we've had or, yeah but he's a new york new york based guy i think so um but oh, I um, see. yeah okay but yeah so i thought here i i'd known about oh, these I'm two albums but i thought i thought okay this is a good chance uh here so uh, we've got two sort of French jazz pianists who are um, also, you know, involved in the classical world. So the first one is called, uh, and Mike's going to help me out on these titles because my oh, French pronunciation is not French. Good, so. I haven't spoken French in 10 years now, but uh, let's this is, see. Uh, William I de Chassis. French, but... Is that it? Which one are we talking about first? Uh, de Chassis. De Chassis. Let me yeah. see this guy's name. Oh, Guillaume de Chassis. Yeah. Guillaume de Chassis. I guess it would be Chassis. 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 Okay. Yeah. And this is uh, the uh, Guillaume de Chassis. Sens de Interior. Sens d'Interior. Oui. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Interior scenes. And so he's a pianist yeah. that um, uh, has, you know, as I say, equally. Uh, a foot in the classical world, and yeah, uh, I got I got that from him too, and I have something to say about that. But anyway, yeah. we'll get to and that so, later. Uh, he's on a you know a, a well known uh, pianist on the French creative music scene. He has a colorful, as French music uh, should be, uh, but kind of understated style, and uh, you know he, he pays particular attention to the the sound and uh timbre but he's right. uh you know, as he's french been, musicians will yeah. yeah and he's been involved with some uh american and european uh you know big jazz names like uh paul motion uh mark murphy enrico rava uh, paolo fresu those two great italian uh, trumpeters and uh, many others and uh but he's also played a lot uh, with uh, well-known classical musicians. And uh, so this album is sort of uh, another uh, product of the uh, Corona period that we've uh, lived all lived through. And so uh, from his notes on this album, uh, from 2020 to 21, it says, it is during the strange period which connects the springs of 2020 and 2021 that unexpected music appeared from me. Hmm. Uh, they came at the right time to give me news. It was enough to put them in shape by letting myself be crossed by the images they aroused. Uh, thus was born these interior scenes, hmm. name of the album. Uh, I confess that I play them above all for myself, but having left the door open. So as uh, you know, all of us around the world have been through various kind of lockdowns and uh, isolation, uh, particularly, uh, you know, working musicians uh, unable to perform in front of crowds. Uh, you know, in one way, they had a chance to focus on composing new things, but, you know, it's sort of an isolationist experience. And so that's the sort of uh, uh, idea, I think, that this album uh, comes out. And overall, I would say that uh, it's, um, you know, very introspective uh, ideas that he's 
and, and they're sort of, uh, how should I say, uh, very personal, uh, but much more to me classically oriented than uh, jazzy uh, in the case of this recording. And, uh, and they tend to be very French, I find, uh, yeah, and impressionistic. I, too. I and, agree. Uh, but I, I enjoyed them for what they were. Uh, so let's go through them. Uh, the first one, how do you uh, help me out here, Mike? Printemps. Uh, Printemps, this is uh, means spring. which means spring. Yeah. yeah. And we've got a nice, uh, all of these are very uh, laid back uh, rubato in general, at least at the start. We've got some pretty modal chords and um, the melody is decorated with these sort of uh, intervallic figures. That in, they kind of evoke a rainy spring afternoon. And uh, as he goes through these, he brings in some trills in the figures, and uh, you'll get a sense right away from his uh, sensitive touch. It's a very nice uh, touch on the keyboard. And then he's got some descending interval lines that sort of, uh, they make you think of water uh, coming down like on a spring day. Uh, mm. So it starts off with this kind yeah, of Maybe a nice spring rain. Says, yeah, spring rainy piece. It's very pretty. Uh, There's a piece by uh, Debussy called Jardin sous la pluie, you know, Gardens mm. in the Rain. And uh, it, it kind of has that sort of like, you know, raining in the springtime. It's a light rain sort of um, That's right. feeling on the piano. So I think it's, it's similar to that in a way. Number two is uh, The Man Who Walks in French. Yeah. Uh, L'homme qui marche. L'homme qui marche. Marche, homme. Marche. Marche. <laughs> and uh, that marching thing is uh, set off Je with marche. the repeated bass notes uh, that he starts off and gets you the motion of this tune. Uh, there's a low yeah, melody. Yeah, that walking theme. Yeah. yeah. And there's a low melody walking, in yeah. chords that are built over kind of pulsing bass tones. And then the the tempo varies in this, so it creates a kind of sense of urgency. Uh, and there's some kind of impactful chords for intensity. But then midway through, things get a bit quieter and you get some really uh, impressionistic scales that are put in here. This is a really French touch that he uh, puts in uh, very classically in here. And then uh, those move on more to the middle register where a new theme develops. And then we get some lower uh, quiet chords and uh, more bass notes that end softly. So this is a very impressionistic uh, influence here. Then we have the title track, uh, here, the interior yeah. scenes. Send interior. Send the interior for number three. This starts with a kind of short rubato piece. It's got a gentle chord progression uh, that he repeats, and there's subtle embellishments uh, that he works on each time through and uh, to a different ending. Um, maybe from what I got, if you know, if we think of this as an impressionistic kind of thing, it's sort of describing a room where one spends a lot of time, maybe his practice room or studio where he's uh, in the lockdown and, uh, you know, he's sort of moving around the sort of uh, landscape of the room and uh, describing things. So that the theme comes back and it's embellished, but there's not a lot of difference. It's very subtle. Uh, but uh, that's sort of the impression I got from the piece. Yeah. I thought I, this was my favorite one on the album. Actually, oh, okay. I thought it was kind of, um, uh, it had a lot of um it had a bit of depth to it i thought yeah you know, there's some something like a that you had to sort of reach for right you know listening to it and for the question of love the question of love la question amoureuse 
Yeah. <laughs> um, this one I, I thought was really appealing. It starts with uh, kind of fast rolling and changing chords that create a dreamy atmosphere. There's some dissonance here too that creates tension, but then it's contrasted with resolutions that give you some relief. And the focus moves to the right hand, and then there's kind of an elevated passion that comes through there and comes back to the bass. It gets heavier, some waves of motion, but it cools down a bit on a single repeated note. Then he brings in some chiming notes uh, up higher, and then it goes down low again. And so I felt like this is sort of uh, the moving emotions of uh, love being shown around uh, the, the keyboard, you know, sort of like the, the, the questions of uh, passion and uh, commitment or something in love. And then it, it sort of going back and forth, the, the pulling emotions of uh, love. And only at the end, the tempo slows down a bit to the final notes. So uh, I thought it's a nice piece of contrast uh, here. Uh, number five, uh, back to Empari. Ret- yeah, retour. Empari. Uh, Empari, return to Empari. Okay, I don't right. know what Empari is, though. I'm not sure, yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, this is a really lovely slow melody that has uh, interesting harmonization. And here he really gets to show off uh, shows off his sense of touch and articulation. Lots of sense of space. Uh, there's no hurriedness to go through here. It's all about the melody and touch. Uh, so a sparse piece that's uh, just nicely presented. Uh, after that, we've got uh, April 19th. Yeah, 19 Avril. Yeah. This one, a relaxed chord sequences come in and it creates a sense of motion, but then it resets and... After some rounds of that sequence, there's an alternating uh, bass figure of notes that creates kind of a tension, and it builds with some low running lines, and then there's uh, syncopation and dynamics. That transforms into a section of really chiming chords over the low bass bass notes. And the things kind of uh, mellow out before he restates the original chord sequences uh, to the end. I don't know the significance of the April 19th, but... Yeah, it uh, might just be the day he wrote the piece. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, yeah. just uh, an idea kind for of a day. jazz thing to do, just date the... You know. Yeah, seven is... Uh, yeah, no answers. Sans response. Yeah, no answer. No answer. Sans uh, it's a melancholy yeah. melody. Some interesting harmonies here. There's an alternating figure between the bass notes that gives it kind of motion between the melodic phrases... Uh, and he puts a pause in after that, and there's some really cascading high tone figures that increase in tempo and intensity. And then they come back and connect to the original theme. And then the last piece, uh, Ooh, never can I the say this? Yes, I yes. love saying this. Jamais le crepuscule. Crepuscule, it's a nice one. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. It's a nice sounding word. Never Jamais, the twilight. Never, yeah. never the twilight. And uh, or this the is- sunset. <laughs> whatever yeah this one has a really intriguing melody um and i like the balance of sort of lifting themes and sadness so this one pulls you in uh two different ways the harmonization is sparse um in the middle there's a, a contrasting section with more emotion that's prov- he provides with kind of left hand rolling figures 
and that gets developed into the final section that continues, uh, you know, the motion on. So, yeah, this is really, you know, it's kind of like a recording of personal sketches. I felt um, maybe they're not completely developed, uh, but I, you know, thinking of you know musicians in the last two years not maybe having uh, ability to interact with others or uh, you know outlets for the music to share something personal like this I, I kind of appreciated it and I thought that um, it was interesting music it's delicate it's introspective and it's impressionistic in that sort of French way of suggesting lots of things that may not be fully developed, but uh, his playing, you know, has a nice sense of touch and balance uh, that allows him, you know, to present these ideas and they show his, uh, you know, his uh, articulation and touch really well. It's a very subtle recording. It's really nice for like a rainy afternoon uh, or something. And you get a feeling of, you know, you're sort of sitting in looking at, you know, someone who might be playing alone in a room and developing his ideas. And in, in that sense, uh, I thought it was uh, enjoyable and, uh, you know, kind of uh, personal uh, sort of look into uh, a piano player's approach to ideas that he's developing. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Um, but for me, though, this, this recording um, was a little too close to the classical side yeah. for me I would have preferred it to be more jazzy because what winds up for me what happens is when I was hearing just the opening piece Printemps and you know as it went on I sort of um, thought oh this is something like uh, like Debussy in here or these uh, chords reminded me of Messiaen's music but then what Debussy and Messiaen would have done with those chords was a lot sort of freer than what uh, this pianist um, de Chassis does does with it, so he could have gotten out of that. I felt like by kind of making the music more jazzy, maybe using some jazz rhythms or um, sort of you know something else. The, he he really adheres a lot to the form of all these pieces. It feels like the form is very important right. to him. So I kind of um, yeah, I, I kind of wanted it to be freer, I thought, or just to go in another direction. Um, it's, it's probably not a good criticism to make because, you know, obviously he, this is the way he wants this music to sound. But I have a funny thing with, um, you know, the, these kind of like classical jazz hybrids. I generally like it. Well, actually, I'll get into that more with the next album because I know what you're going to talk about. But, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I, I would have liked this if it was a little more jazzy because I felt like his ideas were a little uh, more conservative than Debussy's and Messiaen's were, you know, right. and I would have liked to have heard him like, stretch out more. Um, well, that's, it's nice, though. It's enjoyable. I like. That's it. why I yeah. initially passed on these when they first came out. I listened yeah. to a couple of tracks and I thought, this isn't jazzy enough for yeah. what I normally do. So I tried to approach them in a new yeah. Uh, and concept. not only that, yeah, but yeah. A, like a classical work in this, you know, style would have been more harmonically interesting is mm. to me, you know, because you have time to kind of right. write it all out and think it all out and you, you kind of come up with some interesting. You know, when you get these hybrid things, there's, uh, there's a lot of danger involved in them yeah. and that generally you, he, you, you face the alienation of both groups of jazz fans and classical yeah. fans. Yeah, um, it's true. When you get something that's neither mm. nor, and yeah. uh, I think it's hard to um, get some. And I generally don't 
like them. So I have to be in the right mood. But I'm like I, that. I'm I'm with you. I'm the same yeah. way. I generally don't like jazz hybrids, classical hybrids. But as, as we said, the kiss of death is jazz sweet. The right? jazz sweet. Yeah. Well, Only Ellington kind of, can pull that off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'll accept it from Ellington. Yeah. That's about it. That's about I, it. Yeah. Even like uh, Mingus did a jazz sweet. I didn't, I didn't like that either. I was kind of like, yeah. I don't know. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I I'm taking yeah. this for what it is. Um, I I, I you know, uh, but for, I kind of for like me it. though, when you when you have these classical jazz hybrids, I when people try to jazz up classical music, it depends who it is. Like I remember the Jack Jacques Lucier trio doing all right. these Bach recordings. I really liked those. I thought they were really right. creative. You know, they were um, fantastic. You know, they were kind of imaginative. Right. And I think the recording. I I assume you're going to talk about. Paul Lay next. Yeah, right? we're gonna this go to this gonna next. Be, next um, yeah, I, I think. Well, I'll, I'll hold. I'll withhold comment okay. for now. I, but I have something good to say about this, even though I think it's you know I approach this kind of music with um, yeah. trepidation. I, I, this kind of thing. Um, mm. I think. Uh, let's see. What am I thinking of? Manhattan Jazz Quintet has done like various mm. uh, arrangements of uh, classical things, and then uh, you know other jazz musicians have sort of done. There's a. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. It's one. It's one of my favorite uh, recordings. Uh, Ike Quebec, uh, who oh, he's in, good. Yeah, he's yeah. also good at this too. And, and he brings in a lot of yeah. classical themes, but he does them in a you know a more you know uh, jazzy style. So it's really just the classical melody that he's using. Yeah, that uh, he's just really it's in a yeah. completely jazz idiom, and it's just it's yeah. great because it's familiar from classical music. Yeah. But you're hearing it in this jazz rhythm. It's fantastic. Yeah. I really like. And th those all those usually that. work really well. Um, but when you get these things that are more, you know, uh, in the middle of in, in a sort of a limbo that it, mm. they sort of um, make you <laughs> make you make harder decisions. So now so now, I mean, I think with the Chasse, you know, he's obviously uh, very influenced by French classical music. And so that in, in this recording, it it's much more in that direction than it is in, uh, in jazz. But now we move on to this one, uh, next one uh, called Full Solo by Paul Lay, the Sun Gazebo uh, record label. And I should mention that uh, the uh, De Chasse uh, is a nomad music uh, label. I didn't mention that, but- uh, Yeah, it's another so, small label. Huh? Yeah, Paul Lay with Gazebo. So full solo. And uh, so he's another uh, French pianist that has sort of uh, one foot in both worlds of classical and jazz. And um, he was actually uh, requested uh, by uh, some, uh, I'm not sure, a, a journalist or something, Rene Martin, to uh, uh, do something of this nature uh, using uh, Beethoven's works. And so... Um, you know, last year, I remember, was Beethoven's, like, uh, it was like the 250th anniversary of his birth. So it was a right. big, it was supposed to be this big Beethoven year, but then the coronavirus came and ruined all that. But we still got the recordings, yeah. though. So, yeah. So um, he approached this project uh, to uh, examine Beethoven's works. And then, uh, you know, he, he wanted to create something, uh, you know, jazz-like and creative on there and he's written about this uh that um you know he's uh struck by the power of the form of beethoven's uh, music and so it's sort of uh difficult for him to get the right balance uh so 
sort of a distance between the perfection yeah. of the pieces and creating some new space of improvisation. Beethoven's and so, music is structurally yeah. solid. Nice to say that. <laughs> and uh, so what he said is that he wanted to uh, develop new forms on the piano uh, from Beethoven's essentials while retaining the composer's spirit, uh, the rhythm and the melodies uh, and then uh, other characteristics. And then uh, while in this project, he traveled to Vienna uh, for a stay and then, uh, you know, this city where Beethoven lived for a long time, uh, he composed some original pieces that are interspersed in here, just sort of based on uh, something that uh, he encountered uh, a mood or a feeling while he was walking through uh, Vienna. And so uh, th those are the, uh, you know, sort of alterations in the program here. Uh, and so you'll get uh, familiar pieces of Beethoven interspersed with these original works. And, you know, so that's what he's doing here. Um, so we'll, we'll go through this and then <laughs> see if he's successful uh, from our standpoint. So uh, let's see. The first track is uh, Beethoven. Is it uh, Bagatelle? Bagatelle. So, yeah, Bagatelle. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a without opus Bagatelle. I don't really know this one. Right. Um, hmm. And so this one is... Uh, Starts with an interesting rhythmic figure interplay, and but he he gets some kind of bluesy phrases that he can insert into here, and he uh, comes up with a left hand bass melody that he shifts uh, over to the right hand. Um, it it gets it feels like he's swinging with the right hand, but not too much because the left hand has to stay with this uh, kind of even beat here um and then he makes some more variations uh and he alternates a lot between uh both hands uh which is kind of interesting and then uh at the ending uh he alternates between some really heavy kind of beethovian uh cadences and then jazzy so it's kind of fun uh the hmm. switch off in this he's showing that he's he's going to be playful uh with uh, what he's approaching here yeah, I want to mention first of all, a bagatelle. The meaning is like a light piece, or just like a like a like a throwaway piece. A bagatelle, something easy. Yeah, uh, that he just kind of thought of and did. You know, when you label a piece of bagatelle, you're telling the audience that it's not important. That's just something right. you wanted to just kind of write down that you thought was amusing. Um, he actually labels this without Opus 52, so you can actually go back to the uh, actual Beethoven Bagatelle. Right. You can listen on YouTube, just type. Yeah, that's what I did. I, I compared the original you, ones, yeah. You can hear the original work. I don't really know the Beethoven Bagatelles very well. He wrote a lot of them towards the end of his life when he was doing these deeply spiritual works like the String Quartets and the um, the Ninth Symphony, and then he, he wrote like, yeah. like a series of piano Bagatelles, you know, I guess to just kind of unwind. So that's how they're described. Like this one has the Beethoven mm. opus number and the title, and then it says arranged for jazz piano. Right. And then, then we get the alternating piece, his original composition. They're all called in Vienna with a subtitle. And so the first oh, one right. is called portrait. And this uh, starts as a pretty jazz ballad. It's got some lush chords. Um, it gets some more motion and searching lines uh, with some left-hand counterpoint figures. It gets a bit more jazzy, and then his hands really separate into high and low ranges uh, for a different ending. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, interesting little uh, original piece excursion to start out the original pieces. Uh, number three. Here we've got, oh boy. <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Symphony number nine, uh, fourth movement, the uh, presto. Uh, him uh, arranged for jazz piano. All right, the uh, ode to joy. The, the ode famous to joy. ode to joy. 
Um, but it kind of starts out uh, with an ode to Vince Guaraldi. I felt. Um, <laughs> it sort of starts out and he chimes out the. Uh, Not a bad way to start it. No, yeah. It starts mm. the familiar melodies uh, in the left hand. And then uh, in the, or I think, let's see. Uh, no, I think it's in the right hand. This is kind of, then it answers with uh, chiming in the, in the left hand in the bass. Uh, there's some new jazzy transition chords that he gets in here between the sections, always keeping this kind of funky rhythm. Uh, when that when it modulates as it does in the original piece, uh, he adds some dense harmonization. Uh, it's kind of impressive, and then he, but then he gets it funky again, and then there's a more kind of playful jazz section uh, that starts in the middle, and he works into some mm. bluesy chords, uh, some right hand runs, and he has this kind of frantic. Uh, hand chasing going on that sort of disrupts the uh, uh, structure of the piece. Then he brings back the funky kind of thing. And then the dense modulation section comes in again. And he adds uh, some other famous Beethoven intervals uh, from another piece that you'll uh, recognize there. Then he restates the three, the theme, uh, and then he gets back to kind of a chasing ending. Uh, so this piece is uh, really a reconstructed uh, work of one of Beethoven's most famous uh, melodies. Yeah, no, I was saying when I was saying, oh boy, what I what I meant, what I was implying was that you know, how many times <laughs> do we have to hear this? Yeah. Super famous melody. Right. I want to say something about it. Now, we have a big problem here because you, Russ and I live in Japan. And um, the Ninth Symphony by Beethoven gets played to New death. New Year's Eve, yeah. In New, for New Year's, you know, from around December 15th to the, you know, to the end of the year. It gets played several times. It's been said that the Ninth Symphony should be an event, like, you know, when an orchestra plays that. And yet these poor orchestras here play it like 14 times, you know, you yeah. know, within like 15 days with all with uh, amateur choirs who are, you know, <laughs> who've been practicing mm. all year to sing this. Yeah. It's not an easy piece to play and it's really hard on the musicians, you know? Yeah. And I think by the 14th, 13th performance, you're already like, you're kind of going through the motions. You're not really putting it across right. anymore. Although they're professional musicians, so maybe they are. I don't know. Mm. But anyway, so I just, I'm just kind of, I, I want to talk about, I want to just say, um, I remember Alan Watts, the, um, Sort of, he was, he was a bit of a Eastern philosopher, Eastern philosophy guy. He, he's a British guy, but he kind of took on from the 1960s. He became sort yeah. of this Eastern philosophy guru. Zen guru. And he, he, in one of his books, he said something to the effect of, um, he was talking about the Bible and he said, there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible. It might be a good idea to put it away for 10 years and not read it and then go back to it. There's a lot of wisdom. Now, the, <laughs> sacrilegious as this may sound, there's a lot of wisdom in that comment. I actually did this with like the Beatles, for example. You know, I, I just knew every Beatles song by heart. I, I was saying to myself, I don't really need to hear the Beatles anymore. And for a long time, in my 30s, 40s, I just didn't listen to any Beatles songs. And then finally, uh, when they finally remastered them all, I wanted to hear them again. And uh, now I'm really enjoying them again because I had been away from them for so long. I think that's true of the Ninth Symphony as well. Like a little time away from it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think somebody had said, this should be banned from being performed for about three years. And then everybody <laughs> will love it again four years from now because we just hear it too much. I think yeah. there's something to be said about being away from a really famous piece of music for a right. while. You can really start to love it again. All right. So there you go. And you could actually hear Paul McCartney's bass lines on the remastered versions. Yeah. We, we, yeah. That's also very cool because he's yeah. got some pretty awesome bass lines. Yeah. He's, he's a very melodic bass player. Yeah. I never heard those in my 1977 Dodge Dart 
AM yeah, radio speakers. Yeah. They were all yeah. mixed out. Yeah. They were mixed out because you couldn't play bass. Too bad. Right. Um, I remember four. in college. I remember when I was in college because I played the bass in like, you know, rock bands and college punk bands. Yeah. And in order to pick out the bass line, I remember because we had LP records and the bass wasn't mixed very high. No. So I remember being in my roommate's room and playing my stereo in my room and listening to it through the wall so I could pick out the bass line. Yep. We only got the kind of treble articulation coming through. Yeah. Right. None of those. Well, now with CD, we can hear the bass lines again, which yeah. is really nice. Yeah. They don't have that uh, high pass filter uh, right. cutting out all the bass. Hmm. Uh, number four uh, is the next original composition uh, in Vienna blues. Uh, this one has this some. Is, I like this one. Yeah, dense, dreamy chords. Uh, they move into some more bluesy sounds. He gets a bounce going and a line in the left hand, and then he adds some more bluesy lines in the right. So this is getting into more jazzy territory. Some nice chord twists and change ups of the rhythm. He's got some. Uh, chimey chords and then some stormy bass tones and it resets things about three quarters of the way through to return to the original theme and he takes it out with a nice bluesy ending um mm. yeah so somehow he found the blues in vienna yeah uh yeah why not you wouldn't think the blues would be in vienna but there they were there they were uh, i want to ask you what's your favorite beatles song while we're on the topic oh Oh wow! I, I know what mine is right away. I'll tell, I I have a favorite Beatles song. Mm. You have to I think about it. The day in the life, maybe. Uh, mine is drive my car. Oh, you like that one? Uh, it's it's. I think that's like a that's like a. Well, that's what album? That's what? Um, that's Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul. I think no. Rubber Soul is the best orchestration. You know, I I like the horns and things on that album. Yeah, um, Rubber, that was Rubber a turning Soul. point for me has my favorite Beatles song ever, Drive My Car. Drive and my car. the two Beatles songs I dislike the most, Michelle and Girl. Girl. Oh, I, yeah, I don't like those two. two. Oh, okay. I don't like Michelle. I, Michelle is actually, it's a good composition because yeah. he's talking to this French girl and he doesn't speak French. So he's kind of like one syllable gets one note and stuff like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, it's really yeah. annoying for me to listen to. I don't really <laughs> like it. And then Girl, I don't like the way John Lennon you know, sucks in his teeth like he works for the uh, the Japanese, like uh, you know, um, <laughs> government you know, office. A girl, yeah. yeah, with the um, you know, the people at the airport, the uh, customs officials. Oh, you can't bring this in. They go, yeah. you know, when yeah. they want when they want to when you know when something is wrong, yeah. they don't want to tell you it's wrong, so they just suck in their teeth. They go, and like, oh, what's wrong? Tell me, yeah, what tell I me do what's this wrong time. now. Yeah. Anyway, so anyway. The, yeah, the, that part of the song "Girl" kind of annoys me. Although anyway, it's so, a pretty good song, otherwise. Sorry, Paul, to bring on all the Beatles into your. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles are adult music. Those, those are great songs. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, Beethoven, the Beatles. To me, they belong in the same thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's go on. Okay, Paul. Yeah. Uh, number five. That was me that interrupted that. I'll take <laughs> That's the blame. Right. That's right. Send all your hate mail to me. Okay. Um. Here. Uh. Yeah, we're into. Uh, another melody that uh, everyone knows, the uh, Piano Sonata number 14, Moonlight yep. Sonata. First uh, movement. 27. Moonlight Sonata. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and so here, uh, it's a, kind of an interesting intro to this theme that everyone knows. Uh, it's a rubato with a light touch. He keeps it uh, melancholy and mostly straight. Uh, he adds some harmonic additions, but uh, it's not too jazzed up. Uh, here, I think he 
was uh, being a bit conservative with the way he uh, went with this one. No comment on that one. <laughs> as is. Uh, uh, I'll say something about it later. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number six, uh, Symphony Number no. Seven. Uh, this is Opus Ninety Two. This is the second movement. Yeah, the, uh, Allegretto. The slow movement. Yeah, the really so, famous movement. Yeah. It's got a, a dark and low beginning. He's playing it uh, softly. Uh, the left hand starts to develop something uh, rhythmic and bluesy as the tempo increases. And then his left hand uh, makes a theme. Well, the familiar chords are in the right hand, but then they switch. So he switches left and right kind of uh, skillfully here. Uh, then he adds something new that's more expansive on the theme idea. And then it sort of uh, becomes a kind of hypnotic sixth, eighth uh, rhythm kind of section in there. That slows to a pause. And there's a new restatement with an interesting rhythmic backing and it comes back to the previous theme and it takes off into a final new exploration so mm. you know this is a, another well-known piece but uh, he sort of dismantles it and tries some new things with it here uh seven okay. la lettre à Elise. la lettre à Elise. Elise. So, for Elise, you know, for the Elise, famous piano yeah, piece the most one of the most famous piano pieces uh yeah. well this is a very interesting rhythmic variation <laughs> yeah. for this one. Uh, it gets almost it's a, like unidentifiable as that yeah, piece, really. Yeah. Almost a mambo like vamp going here with kind of minor bluesy images. Uh, but it's hard not to like this. Uh, he's got some really nice breakdowns between uh, phrases here, too. So uh, I kind of I thought this was a lot of fun. Um, uh, this is followed by another one of the original in Vienna pieces. This one's called Water Drops. Uh, there's a very modern moving harmonies on this one that have some uh, sudden pauses. And then uh, the high kind of tinkling notes here, they do remind you of Water Drops. And it's a very short piece too. So uh, just a very kind of uh, picture uh, impressionistic kind of thing. Um, now then we come to uh, number nine, uh, five Scottish songs. Uh, yeah, I don't opus. even know these in the yeah, original. I don't know these. So yeah. kinda, mm. um, opus 108, too. They have an opus number. Number 13, Come Fill, mm. Fill My Good Fellow, uh, arranged mm. for jazz piano. It's a nice ballad, uh, ballad treatment here. It's beautifully harmonized. Uh, uh, the very dynamics and sense of touch are very nice, and he has a really uh, fitting uh, ending here. Number 10, we've got a, a French title. Wanna... Des sourires et des ombres. So, uh, of smiles and shadows. Smiles and shadows. Yeah. This has got a kind of slow tempo, but a Latin type of motion to it. The harmonic colors are gentle, uh, but the playing is uh, very tender. The phrases kind of swell naturally where they reach climaxes. So, the phrasing is nice. And uh, nice, uh, light, and uh, articulated uh, high key phrases. And it swells again. There's some descending cascades in the right hand. And once more, uh, restates the pretty melody for a nice ending. Hmm. And then uh, we've got uh, track 11, another one of the originals in Vienna. Uh, Heiligenstadt. Heiligenstadt. Yeah, named after the famous uh, Heiligenstadt Testament of Beethoven, where he um, said that he was going, he he was contemplating suicide, but decided not to do it because he was going to just 
go on and keep composing or something like that. Yeah. That letter written in 1803. You can look it up on uh, Wikipedia if you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so this one is, uh, it's a creatively harmonized modern waltz. There's different contrasting sections. Uh, it's a nice uh, composition. And it also has a catchy melody. Uh, so this one uh, is kind of fun. And then uh, the last track 12 is uh, Seven Bagateas. This opens Opus 33. 33. So this was written around the time of the, um, yeah, this is um, the Opus 33. Uh, Opus 33, that can't be right. I'm pretty sure there's a piano set of piano sonatas around. Well, there are around those mm. opus numbers, but this is really um, kind of in just before his heroic period. So it, right. it's kind of interesting that he's writing this here. I think of um, Symphony Number no. Five would be his his heroic, you know, music. That's Opus Fifty Six. Right. So this is a little earlier than that, but he's working towards that. Let's say. So here he, he starts with some sparse phrases of the intro, and then. Uh, these come kind of in separated pieces, but then they, they start to sort of uh, lock together to form something. Uh, and then the melody comes together in a motion with a more jazzy feel. There's kind of a nice undulating left-hand support uh, in the sections of these. And he takes off into some flights and bouncy excursions. And the melody uh, returns softly once more, uh, kind of to a nice tidy ending. So, I mean... Well, you know, you've got something here, a pianist who's got, you know, a foot in both classical and jazz worlds. And then is he going to pull it in? Is he going to make jazz fans and classical fans like this? Well, I don't know. Uh, I can say his technique is very impressive. Um, and he's used, you know, Beethoven's compositions as an inspiration for some kind of new, interesting improvisations. And then also he's got these original pieces sandwiched in here. Hmm. So traditionalists may, may not approve of, <laughs> of this kind of programming, yeah, but you know, for everyone else, I think, I think you can find something to enjoy here. Uh, I kind of liked it. Uh, I think he's not taking it too seriously, which is really good, especially in the first piece where he has this kind of, you know, very, you know, romantic uh, brooding kind of phrases alternated with the light jazz things. I think he's telling us, you know, look, I'm having fun here. I, he, he pays enough respect to the compositional sense of Beethoven's uh, pieces, keeping the integrity, but then he sees where they can inspire new ideas. So if you, if you take it, you know, with that sort of uh, uh, approach and you're not uh, too much of a Beethoven worshiper, then, you know, I think you can, uh, enjoy it and uh, just see that he's getting some ideas from you know a more historical source and his technique and yeah. playing is uh you know really really impressive so yeah and, and to be honest if you're a beethoven worshiper and you don't like this you need to lighten up because yeah. that's what we in exactly. adult music are all about you know exactly yeah. on, we we just want to enjoy you know yeah. come on life is short right we're getting older here mm. it's 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 all gonna end one day. So let's, uh, that's for sure. let's, let's really enjoy this. Okay. What I want to say about this is, um, you know, I, I, this isn't a, a record that's going to get into my, uh, record collection. I, but I did enjoy hearing it. And it's mostly because Paul Lay, he has good improvisational ideas. I really did mm -hmm. enjoy what he came up with. 
um, not only on his own in the in Vienna pieces, pieces, but you know in his improvisations on Beethoven's themes. I thought he was really creative. Uh, he had right. a lot of um, yeah, he had interesting ideas, and they were jazzy enough too to get away from the classical music. So I, I like this mu- this album a lot more than I thought I would. So that's what huh. I'll say. Um, yeah, I thought it was good. It was. Um, I think it's something you need to be in the mood for because you, you got to know you're going to hear all these Beethoven themes. But um, he his creativity is um, really appealing to me. It was uh, his ideas are fresh. I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah, but well, I, I'm I'm generally not a big fan of this sort of thing in general. Me neither. Let's say that. Um, yeah. I I mm. saw both of these. I spot listened to them, uh, and I didn't know how it would fit them in, be, just because. You know, as I said, you know, I have my own kind of preferences for, you know, the things that I listen to. But then when I knew we were going to do this French theme, I thought, well, okay, Uh, these sort of fit that theme. And I'm glad I listened to that. We should do more of these theme kind of episodes. And I like to, I want to stretch myself and be more open to different kind of uh, ideas. And I thought, you know, both of these were successful in. Uh, their own way. I, I give Lay credit for, you know, if you're going to use Beethoven as a base for your uh, improvisations, you're going to piss some people off uh, and be, just because that's I the way I think you would have back in the day. I think we're a little more, I, I hope, geez, I hope we're a little more uh, relaxed well, about music now. Yeah, I guess. I, but, you know, you know what I'm saying it's like he could have just released his, you know, original sort of uh, ideas separately there. But uh, he went out on a limb, and I like that. And I, but I do like, uh, uh, you know, the one before that too, uh, De Chasse's ideas too. Uh, I think mm-hmm. you know this kind of two years of musicians in isolation, and uh, I like that <laughs> introspective. But I also thought that that works with the French theme really well. Um, yeah. You know, there's sort of uh, impressionistic things that he came up with that he played for himself, and then he shared them with us, and I. Yeah, I thought, you know, I'm glad you shared those um, because, uh, you know, they were a nice thing to see, even though they weren't particularly jazzy. Um, But, um, you know, maybe uh, if they if it was these ideas were uh, thought of and worked out by just a classical pianist, they would have never been heard because they wouldn't have been by a composer and Mm. uh, like that. So, you know, as sort of a middle ground. Yeah. Uh, both of these uh, albums gave me a chance to listen to them as uh, something matching a French theme. And yeah, so uh, take a listen. You can't go wrong. They're not bad. Yeah. By the way, before we get off this uh, this kind of classical sort of theme, I want to talk about something about opus numbers that I learned from Robert Greenberg, who's a composer. And he also did a lot of um, series um, on the, the Great Courses, which formerly called The Teaching Company, that I saw. Um, open, you know, classical music. We, we, you know, Russ was talking about how oh, people may be offended by the Beethoven thing. You know, classical. There, there's still, you know, I think I don't really run into them very often, but there are still people in the classical music, um, you know, world. Let's say, and they're usually audience members who know a bit about music and are a bit uh, snobby about it. Let's say, and uh, Robert Greenberg gave some advice that I'd like to pass on about how to handle these people um, when somebody <laughs> when somebody is is kind of going on about uh, their superior knowledge about classical music. The way to combat these people is you memorize 
a few opus numbers. Okay, now I mentioned like uh, Beethoven's Symphony Number no. Five is Opus Fifty Six. Okay, and you might want to remember Symphony Number no. Nine is Opus One Hundred Twenty Five. So just remember, like, say five of these, and then when you you're confronted with one of these people, and he's saying, "Oh, I thought the Fifth Symphony was you know so and so," you know, he's talking about the Fifth Symphony, and you could say to him something like, "Oh, well, you know, I think uh, Opus Fifty Six is a little uh, overplayed or something like that." He says, "As soon as you start talking Opus numbers." People will back off and give you space. You're not going to be, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So that, that that's one way to get these people to back off. Just just have like maybe five or six Opus numbers memorized. You just throw right. that out at them, and they they won't bother you anymore. Right. I, I found that it's true actually. Yeah. Uh, so we're talking about those Opus numbers again. Are the order is the order that uh, uh, that uh, of a composer's uh, published works. Okay, not the order he composed them. The order they were published in. Okay. Right. So, okay. Then if you like talk about Nielsen opus numbers, then you're going to really have people running because yeah, I actually don't you know, know this myself. Yeah. I should look them I don't up. Know them but, either, you know, but, but you want to yeah. know, you know a few K numbers from um, Mozart. Mozart, yeah. Mozart is um. Uh, should I tell people this one now that we're not in the classical thing? Kershaw listing. Kershaw was um. A Mozart kind of fanatic, who, a scholar who uh, organized all of his music, and he numbered them all. So we honor him by calling them uh, Kershaw, you know, number. Okay, and then the the number he assigned these pieces. Anyway, so much for that. Indexing, recording. Well, makes yeah. things. The problem with classical music is people usually give their pieces names like Sonata in A Minor. <laughs> yeah, know, what is that? Doesn't really say anything. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, there are a million of those. So which, you know, which one is it? Now. You know, yeah. So it's, you need those numbers to kind of know which sonata in A minor it is. Anyway, so rounding out the week's jazz selection, uh, actually, this one is not a new release, but it was new to me, and it was I wanted new to, to me include too, it, and very um, welcome as well. Yeah. So you know, generally, I try I to look to at it. what's coming out, but. Things mm. slip through the radar, especially in this time of, uh, you know, mainly digital releases and uh, lots of self-releases uh, that are coming out. And so things can come out and completely be unnoticed. And so I'm, I have several uh, sources for jazz things that I'm always looking at uh, the new releases. And uh, this one didn't show up anywhere. And then it showed up... Uh, about a week ago on one new release uh, listing. And so I started listening to it. I said, oh, this is great. And uh, yeah. then I looked and I saw, well, it actually came out at the beginning of the year, but it didn't show up anywhere else. It was, you know, it didn't show up on Deezer list, Apple or anywhere. Uh, but since I liked it so much, I thought, well, what the hell? Probably a lot of other people haven't heard this yet. And so it's worth talking about. And since it's a, uh, a kind of debut as a leader of a player. I wanted to talk about it. Uh, right. And it's the uh, Italian pianist, uh, Bruno D'Ambra and yeah. Vesuviana, his debut. Uh, well, I'm not quite sure on the release documentation. Uh, it's credited uh, variously as a self-release mm. and also as records DK 
too. And since I've never heard of that, maybe that's what he well, decided yeah, to call it's, it himself. It's available yeah. on Bandcamp. I looked it up yeah. there. Um, unfor- I like this record a lot. And unfortunately, it's not available on any hard copy. Not yet. So no. if, he's, if he's listening, I want to encourage him to put it out on a CD because I would yeah. like to have a copy of this for my to put on the shelf. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, this is a uh, Italian pianist from Naples, and he's showing his uh, Neapolitan roots. Yeah, on... Naples, where my ancestors are from. So hey. I'm a Campania guy here. Campania. Yeah. And uh, so he's got a a uh, release uh, of a piano trio set of eight original compositions uh, here as a leader and you know, so something new. And uh, I thought this is a, a really nice uh, debut as a leader. He's got some side credits on other recordings, uh, but he uh, grew up uh, in this region and, uh, you know, sort of his uh, home environment is in the shadow of uh, Mount uh, Vesuvius. As yeah. A, as a geographic feature. Yeah. Hmm. And, uh, but now he's, uh, you know, he's been on the UK jazz scene uh, for 20 years or so, uh, working with, uh, you know, some major players there, including uh, Quentin Collins, uh, Tony Crofey, and uh, Nigel Price, uh, who we had uh, a couple weeks ago on right, the uh, organ, our podcast, yeah. the organ, uh, uh, guitarist, actually. Oh, guitarist. Uh, the sorry, organ yeah. trio, yeah. The and organ so trio, that, but he's uh, a guitarist, right? He's the guitarist, yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, so... Uh, each one of these pieces is kind of inspired by a person, place, or situation from uh, his life. And uh, so uh, we've got all original stuff here and uh, kind of a pleasing uh, initial recording uh, as a trio format. He's joined here on drums by uh, Emiliano Carosetti and on uh, drums and on bass, uh, Jason Reyes. And uh, the title track, uh, Vesuviana uh, opens up with uh, a kind of uh, dramatic vocal improvisation by uh, instrumentalist Al uh, Maranca. Get a look at yeah. Al Maranca, I guess. Maranca, no, yeah. Uh, so he uh, sort of uh, brings this kind of uh, Neapolitan folk kind of vocal here. Uh, it's a very kind of folk uh mysterious and longingness uh, to the intro, but that transforms uh, very quickly mm-hmm. when the trio it comes certainly in does. <laughs> and uh, the main tune is really uh, gentle and happy uh, kind of a major kind of thing, but it's in, interestingly, it's in a five, four uh, uh, time signature, which is unusual, um, but uh, they pull that off smoothly. And uh, D'Ambra comes in, his solo is uh, really relaxed, uh, and it shows a really nice articulation and melodic sense. And the harmony has some really kind of uh, pleasing uh, modal shifts that move around uh, here. And it's a really kind of upbeat mood uh, that establishes what this album is mainly about. Uh, and so you get a little taste of that local folk kind of, uh, you know, flavor. But then it goes into this sort of modern uh, upbeat modal thing in the 5-4 time signature. Uh, track two is... Uh, Mandorla Kiss. Nice title. Yeah. Uh, and a really nice <laughs> piano intro here. Uh, this is a little swinging ballad. Uh, and you'll see here he has a really nice uh, kind of uh, articulation and touch sense that he brings in uh, here in his solo. He's got some really nice uh, uh, runs on his uh, right hand. The piano sounds very bright. 
Uh, Reyes has a nice bass solo here that matches the mood. And then D'Ambra comes back in with a more melodic playing and a nice piano ending. Uh, track three is called Top Geezer. This one is about his grandfather. Uh, <laughs> Geezer, I guess it's kind of a nice one. Uh, it's fast syncopated bop tune uh, here. Uh, D'Ambra comes right out of the gates really quickly for the first solo. And he shows a more aggressive side to his playing here compared to the earlier tracks. Uh, he trades off with the drums uh, in the solo. And then the drums uh, continue on uh, until a repeat of the melody. And it's a fun uh, little tune. All the tunes on this album are really short, actually. Uh, so uh, they go right uh, through. There's not a lot of extended uh, playing here. Uh, track four is called Three for Train. And it's kind of a swinging waltz tune inspired by uh John Coltrane compositions. Here he shows some more modern harmonizations in the tune, uh, a little bit uh, different kind of chords here with his solo. Uh, Reyes has another good bass solo here where he shows his nice deep woody tone. And this is, uh, you know, it's a good composition uh, based on, you know, sort of uh, jazz standards uh in the, or originals, in this case, by Coltrane. And the improvisation is a high level uh, added on top of that. Number five is called, this tune is a really interesting one. It's called Midnight Road Rage. <laughs> it's got a Rage. good title too. Yeah. Midnight Road, sorry. It's a great title. The, yeah. Midnight Road Rage. Yeah. And uh, this one, I'll keep you guessing. There's a lot of stuff going on. It starts as kind of a midi, medium blues tempo, but it speeds up and then it sort of jumps into this kind of repeating rhythmic vamp section. Uh, and when Domber comes in with his solo, it goes back to the bluesy idea. Then it hits that turbo uh, beat where it steps up midway. And then he goes back to the vamp. And then like there's drum flares coming in. It, it keeps changing up. So it's not a, uh, a standard blues by any, any <laughs> so I, but the, it matches the title midnight road rage. Uh, so yeah, kind of a uh, creative, uh, original composition six is called blue pictures of you this is a six eight uh ballad uh some nice uh brush drumming that uh, gives it a lift it's kind of slow but the the drum uh subdivisions of the beat keeps it moving on and uh, another nice warm bass solo here from reyes and uh this one shows uh, the ambra's uh, articulation and touch uh uh in his subtlety in his playing Number seven is uh, in for a penny. And, uh, you know, if you're a, a jazz listener and uh, you know a lot of uh, jazz standards, this one is going to immediately remind you of the tune Speak Low. It's just like, yeah, I don't even know if it's composed over the same chords or not, but it's really, really close to uh, that tune. And the other thing about it is it's got those contrasting uh kind of uh, straight kind of Latin beat and swing section uh, pieces that uh, sections that create tension, uh, especially, uh, you know, you know, you you're soling along in a straight eight period, and then you, you come up and build up to that swing and then tsh, 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 kind of thing. Uh, and so uh, that really captures the spirit of uh, what I thought was like speak low. Uh, and, and here in D'Ambra sing, swings really nicely through a solo develops lots of uh, interesting melodic ideas. He's a very melodic player. Um, he's always coming up with, uh, you know, really uh, good melodies in his solos. 
And uh, then in this one, uh, he also trades off some eight bar phrases with the drums before they come back uh, to that one. And then uh, the final tune, uh, Concettina. Concettina. Which this is, is like, uh, I think Concetta would be like a woman's name and well, Ina kind of means yeah, little, so, right? Well, mm. Here, he he hints at what this one is about. So Top mm. Geezer was about his granddad, huh. but Concettina is is dedicated to his third grandmother. Well, I don't know what that what that means. Uh, so maybe well, it's another mean like, mean like little Conchetta. So yeah, so maybe it's another maybe older really woman small. who he yeah. you know uh, you know extended family or almost like yeah. family. Also, or something Ina like can that. be a term of affection too. Yeah, you know. You know so maybe another woman that he grew up with, uh, 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 sort of matronly figure or something like that. But this one is hmm. um, it's kind of interesting to end with a ballad. Uh, too. It's a really slow ballad with lush chords. Um, there's a lot of space here. And then he can show some clear articulation on the runs uh, in his solos here. I mean, another really nice uh, Reyes bass solo, but this one, he, he gets up into the higher register, which he didn't do in the other solos. And uh, D'Ambra comes back and he keeps it uh, you know, really nice and subtle with a real tender uh, close. So this is... Uh, Obviously, you know, dedicated to someone that he has uh, a lot of uh, attachment uh, to. And uh, so, yeah, a new pianist that I hadn't heard of, although, you know, he's, he's, he's going to establish clear on the, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, on the uh, uh, British jazz scene, but hailing from Italy. Uh, and I understand reading his profile is largely self-taught. But um, he seems to uh, have all the tools here. He shows, uh, you know, original sense of uh, kind of uh, fresh compositions, uh, nice phrasing. He doesn't overplay. He's got a nice touch and uh, really upbeat style, uh, puts you in a good mood, uh, different uh, moods in his compositions. And I think this one is uh, worth giving a listen to and uh, a player that you want to, uh, remember his name and see what he comes up with next. Yeah, enjoyable all the way through. I really want a CD copy of this. So uh, if yeah. anybody, um, if Bruno, if you're listening, or if any of your people are listening, uh, I want to encourage you to put this out on CD because I want to, I want to get a hard copy of it. By the way, uh, I had mentioned like earlier on this um, podcast, we, we do, we seen, we've been doing a lot of Italian like artists this year. It's like we have this thing for Italian artists. And here's another one. Right. It's been an extraordinary year for Italy. Um, the, the, an Italian rock band won the. Um, uh, Eurovision Song Contest. Then the Italian soccer team won the uh, the Euros, the European uh, Soccer Championship. Um, it- Italy in the uh, Olympics, which just ended today, uh, won more medals than they ever have before. I mean, they're hardly like wow. at the top of the table, but um, it's an extraordinary year for Italy. And, yeah, good year. Uh, apparently, it's a good year for Italian music as well. You know, it's right. Italian jazz because we and and classical music because we've been talking about them a lot too. And I was thinking, oh, maybe we're biased towards this music, but no, maybe it's just a special year for them. It's really uh, interesting. I don't know. I'm I'm delighted per- personally, um, loving Italian things as I do. But, uh, yeah, they're having an extraordinary year over there. Yeah, in general, uh, hmm. most of the jazz releases uh, that I've thought were, like, you know, really interesting and 
uh, was excited to hear were European and and we've had a lot of Italian ones, yeah. uh, French ones, and then uh, Scandinavian. Uh, yeah, it's so. odd that we're not doing so many American ones, but uh, they're off on a kind of yeah. darker tangent, I think. Well, but we there are American artists that we love, and we're going to do yeah, them when they come out with just, albums. But you know, I had a feeling like you know, like when we talked with uh, Michael Adon, and then that one, yeah. there were a lot of recordings that were made sort of like at the beginning of the sort of COVID thing, and then they were sort of held back. You know, yeah. um, and so there's there, there may be, you know, sort of a pause in things that, you know, were intended to come out uh, for various reasons uh, that maybe are just coming out now or whatnot. So, yeah, I, yeah. I want to encourage record companies. You, there's no need to hold records back because you have extreme music uh, <laughs> talking yeah. about your music. Yeah, I we're mean, here for you. So uh, yeah. put those albums out. We want to hear them and we'll it's make like, sure everybody else does too. It's like you read all these things about how, you know, Hollywood is holding back on these uh, movie release dates, you know, because people aren't going to be going to the theaters or something like that. But, you know, music yeah. is different from that. If yeah. it's been recorded, you got to get it out, you yeah, know, as soon out. as people possible. Can hit, people yeah. can like stream it now. You know, you can just hear it wherever they are. They're yeah. all locked in, down anyway. So, I mean, yeah. you know. You're, you're more likely to get it listened to sooner Mm. Uh, under these circumstances, so. it's just the under the old style. The band can't like promote it by you know touring or yeah know, giving performances or anything. But I don't think that matters at this point. You know, yeah, we want to hear it, and people uh, people like us will talk about it. You know, and we'll absolutely get people listening. So, you know, please release those records. Okay, and that's going to be it for us for a while. It looks like uh, until at least uh, mid September. I'm sorry you to say, you'll be back in September. But uh, yeah. you know, we'll have a we'll stock. It's going to be a ton of music to talk about. Stock then, up on the releases, sure. and uh, yeah. we'll be back uh, for concluding the summer releases, and then looking forward to what's coming out in the fall. And yeah, for uh, Christmas too, we're going to have all that stuff oh, coming too. Yeah. In the end of the year, end of the year review, we'll have, we'll have all this stuff. Yeah. So um, I've already got. There's already been a release, a classical release of a Legrenzi. But, you know, Italian Ooh. composer from the Baroque era, Legrenzi Christmas Mass, came out in April or something like that, but I'm saving it for November. <laughs> Figure maybe, oh. why not, you know? Right. Or December, you know? Get it ready for Christmas, because that's when people are going to want to hear it anyway. Yeah. Hmm. I don't yeah, know why they released so, it so early in the year. So, we'll take a few weeks off and uh, stock up uh, on the music to talk about, and we'll be back in uh, September. And yeah, so, around mid-September. Um, please, we will be checking our email, so you can you can feel free to write. We will respond. Uh, yeah. One of us will. Anyway, I'll be checking it anyway yeah, from yeah. where I am. And, um, you know, I know we've got a lot of new listeners because uh, I've noticed every week in the past month or so, we've got quite a few people going back, checking out uh, all the way back to Hello World. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you, uh, you know, if you just joined us recently... Uh, and you haven't caught up on uh, the past episodes or listened we, to the yeah. uh, playlist. Uh, you know, we encourage you to. A couple of weeks to, yeah. to uh, get up to speed on that. And uh, we'll be back with some uh, new recordings over the summer and fall releases uh, in uh, September. Uh, so until then, this has been episode 26 of adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind and we'll see you again soon in september mm-hmm.